Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Oh boy, it's 9-11, but a day after. It's 9-12. Uh, you will be listening to this on 9-12 after you have um, finished whatever it is that you do on 9-11. Either, either be sad or uh, tell jokes or nothing at all. Um, it's all fine. There's no wrong thing to do uh, when you're thinking about a day where a really fucked up thing happened, but I, I, that's actually untrue. There is one wrong thing to do. And we're going to talk about the wrong thing, uh, today because most people, I think, think back to the day after nine 11 as, Oh, everybody was like out of their minds with like grief and fear and saying some really fucked up shit and generating a kind of fury that acted as propulsion and justification for a lot of very, very bad things. Um, and is not in general a time that we should look back on with particular pride, uh, or, or, uh, certainly what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, nostalgia, uh, everyone that is except for Glenn Beck. Um, now James, we've got James Stout here, Chris. Hey, Chris, uh, what do y'all, what do y'all know about Glenn Beck? Cause James, you are, this is controversial to say, but I think we should rip the bandaid off British. Um, and <laughs> Chris, you're very young, you, so I'm wondering, how much do you know about Mr. Beck? He was like the, my, my memory of him, he was kind of like the, 
well, I don't know. Er is not quite the right word, but he was like he he, he was like like the guy in sort of like right wing shithead like punditry for a while. My my memory of him, he 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 was like he was like a slightly more put together Alex Jones. Like he had like the weird pin boards and shit, and like yeah. Is is this the right guy? Yeah, he's Alex Jones yeah. with a budget in terms of kind of the space he fills. Um, yeah. James, did you know? Did you catch much of him? Not re- so. My engagement with Glenn Beck is mostly through like teaching American history classes and trying yeah. to explain like the explosion in lies and bullshit and hate that immediately follows nine eleven. Yeah, uh, and uh, so he, like, yeah. But no, I've never really heard his stuff. Like, yeah. I, Glenn Beck, he's he's doing radio shit and stuff before 9-11. By the time he actually comes on the scene, it's a few years after 9-11, and he gets a show on Fox News. Um, and Glenn is, you know, um, I watched him every night. My parents always watched him. My dad considered him to be, like, a really good historian, um, which is bleak. Um, a lot, but he was, he was, he was... A unique sounding figure. So when Glenn Beck comes onto the stage, right, the biggest dude in right wing media is still Rush Limbaugh. But Rush is has kind of taken a backseat in the last couple of years, especially right after 9-11 to guys like um, Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly. You know, and those are kind of, they are kind of like they are powerhouses in right wing media. And then you've got, well, those guys are on TV. You've got this cast of people who are like bargain basement discount brush limbaugh's on the radio that are all kind of waiting in the wings for their chance to be the next big TV hero. Um, and those guys include people like um, um, like Glenn Beck and also folks like Michael Savage. Um, there's a couple of, ma- a lot of maniacs that you probably have not heard of that we don't need to dredge up. But Glenn Beck kind of sails out of the fever swamps of the right-wing media um, and gets a fucking TV show on Fox News. And in very short order, he is the biggest fucking thing on the network. Fox News is the most popular network in the country, and Glenn Beck is their number one host. In 2009, he's pulling in something like 3 million viewers a night. And yeah, he's 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 very very influential. Um, and this is the point in time in 2009. By the way, the other thing that's happened that's big in right wing media circles is Barack Obama has been elected president. Yeah, um, yeah. Now, birtherism. Yeah, you've got birtherism going. happening. But in general, I think one good way to think about it is that 9/11 supercharges the right, but in a very like populist way in a because there's this expectation like we talked about in the last episode this expectation that people are coming back to god because there's been a big disaster we're going to war and war always benefits you know the conservatives and the in the you know the party like we're going to win this war and that's going to be huge for us um and you also have like just this this sense because bush becomes the most popular president anyone can remember having that the the tide of history is with conservatism you know in the immediate wake of 9-11 and then that all goes to shit because conservatives have terrible ideas for everything yeah. um, and they launched two disastrous wars and by 2009 there's not a lot of people who are gonna like admit in public no I think you know, both those wars were good ideas that were handled well right like <laughs> you know even the people who were who were real bullish about that stuff are like well you know they they didn't do this right or that right or it's impossible to win in that part of the world and you know it was it, that's the I, I heard different versions of that from from different family members and stuff but there's this this real sense of aggrievement and in the wake of uh, Bush like it's it's kind of taken for granted because about how 
how disastrous his his presidency had been that um he was not you know it was not going to be a republican who won that election um but the fact that it is barack obama a black guy they lose their goddamn minds i think they'd been ready for I think even they would have been fine with Hillary Clinton. Obviously, they would have, like, gone nuts on her like they did on Bill. But, like, I think they would have – I don't think that would have caused them to go crazy the way that Obama did. Um, it is it is not wrong to compare the impact to 9-11 in a lot of ways because it's this massive shock that shakes the center of their world, that they view as an attack, as an assault on, like, white, middle-class Americans. And – the shock waves of that, I mean, we're still dealing with them. But one of the things that's that's happening here is that after 9-11, they had this sense that history is with us, momentum is with us. And after Obama gets elected, you see the conservative movement get much more insular and much more conspiratorial and much more focused on, like, grievance and anger and revenge um, because they, they know they're – the, the, nothing's going to bring back the people. So there's there's kind of nothing but but vengeance. Um, and the, Beck is the guy who's going to tap most effectively into this feeling, this feeling of fear and this need to feel like you're like you were right after 9/11 when it felt like everything was surging forward in the right's direction. And so in 2009, he launches what he calls the "We Surround Them" campaign. Now, the we in this, I think, is supposed to be conservatives, and them is the government. But I think you can assume other, you know, if you think about the urban-rural divide in this country, there's another meaning to that sort of thing. Um, now, this this is a series of, of segments and specials on Beck's show that grew very popular. So popular, in fact, that a lot of local right-wing organizations start hosting viewing parties. And this becomes like the earliest stirrings of the Tea Party movement, right? All of these right-wing radio stations and stuff, these local talk radio stations and other organizations are holding viewing parties for uh, to watch Glenn Beck talk about you know his do his we surround them act and i'm, I'm gonna play uh, a clip for you now from one of these viewing parties we're gonna play a couple of clips this is from one uh filmed by a talk radio station in fort wayne georgia um and uh yeah it's 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 something else all right, so I want to um I want to play this for you. I think it's a fascinating artifact, and how the radio host chooses to introduce the event is noteworthy, as is the man's appearance. Yeah, with six hundred sick freaks watching Glenn Beck on Fox News for nine twelve project. It's amazing. So. What? What? <laughs> it's interesting what? to me. <laughs> I, I think it's it's kind of worth going over a couple of things there because that that doesn't seem like a lot, but the fact that he he describes the guy the people in there as sick freaks and 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 then like we're sick freaks, but like kind of taking pride in that that's what he assumes liberals would call them for watching Glenn Beck. You can see a shade in this of a lot of liberals because they're dumb were taken by surprise when like Hillary Clinton called Trump supporters a basket of deplorables and they immediately adopted that name for themselves yeah. no yeah, again that's you see the stirrings yeah. of it here right like this is this is what the movements turned into um you're taking pride in the fact that you're outnumbered and and despised also the 912 project i'm uh, <laughs> i'm intrigued oh yes that's that is that is coming we're we're building yeah. to that cool, cool um so anyway we get some rock and guitar licks uh just just some some of the best preloaded rights free guitar music i've ever heard and then we pan into this very full conference room there's like 600 fucking people in this thing and they are as far as i can tell 
all white. Um, it is certain that the only people they talk to when they do like, because you know the camera goes around to like get people's statements on the event. The only people who are featured on oh. camera are white, like a hundred percent of them. And I'm gonna play a clip from that now. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, glad you're doing this. I'd like to get our constitution back. I love you for doing it, and we're all behind you. Thank you. Hi, Glenn. We are Jackie and Bill Becker. We're from Angle, Indiana, and we would like to thank you that you are helping us, we the people, to take back our America. Thanks. Uh, you're the man, Glenn. What you're doing is great for America, and you're an encouragement to all of us. We're fed up with the federal government. Now, <laughs> the, the, there are like types it's of impossible. <laughs> I know. I know. That video I have not seen since I was a child. James, James you might die. <laughs> yeah, there are a couple of extinct kinds of white guy in that video. The very uh-huh. last of them died to COVID when they cut a hole in the middle of their mask and went to a Lubies. <laughs> It's missed. Now, here's the thing. I, I, I want to acknowledge something that is impossible to deny, which is that the fact that we are laughing at them in this way is part of why they got so angry and put Trump in office, right? Part of why liberal tears is a thing. Part of why there's so much focus on this desire of hurting the enemy. Um, but also, they just all look impo- like <laughs> impossibly American. Like, yeah. like, like. Yeah. These yeah. are the people I used to see in Barcelona from a hundred yards away. <laughs> <laughs> and, and people would be like, "How do you know an American?" And like, my friends would be like, well, first of all, you've come dressed as a fucking tree." And, <laughs> and secondly, like, look oh. at yourself. Yeah. And this wow. look, these are some of the people who raised me. Are are not you know? The, 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 I grew up around these people. I grew up with these people. I am I am of these people. Um, I think I wear better shirts. Uh, mm, but I've not seen you dressed as a tree. <laughs> yeah. But but it is like. You you see in this these people who feel like, and that's kind of the thing they're communicating, something has gone wrong with the country. And the thing that's gone wrong is they are looking out and people don't look like them. And in fact, people are looking at them like they look weird and people are making fun of their ways and their customs. And this has taken them by surprise and they're extremely angry about it. And seeing a black man as president, which is the least anyone could look like them, right? Barack Obama, many flaws, 2009 there was not many cooler looking dudes than barack obama like and Mm -hmm. that that is yeah you have to understand like the the bar is so low here Mm -hmm. that like a reasonably well-dressed person is like dropping a nuclear weapon on like Mm -hmm. six cavemen yeah it is (laughs) yeah it is yeah chaotic the show ends with beck because they're watching glenn beck on a a fucking projector. And it ends with him near tears. He would cry on his show constantly, telling everybody there that they, they were all going to meet back together in six months to find some ways in which they'd managed to, to, to add some 9-12 energy to their lives. And we'll get to this more, but the thing he's saying is that the day after 9-11, we were the best version of ourselves as a country. Everyone was so godly and so loving and so united. And that's the thing that we need to get to deal with the horror of Barack Obama being the president. Um, and obviously the other thing happening, I shouldn't, I don't want to be unfair here. It's not just that they're scared about Barack Obama. This is 2009. The economy has just completely shat a fucking brick. The housing market is through the goddamn floor. Some actually scary things are happening, too. It's just that they're kind of grafting all of them onto the specter that is Obama, you know? 
Um, anyway, uh, yeah. So after this, we pan out to widespread applause in this very full room, and then we cut to interviews. This time, I know everyone's going to be really excited here. There's a baby. Oh, this it's pretty cute. It's, it's yeah, pretty. Yeah, it's I'd a pretty cute it. baby. Yep. The youngest Glenn Beck fan. Yes, she Look is. at that. <laughs> what? Oh, jeez. This child has my reaction to this. It's so funny. It's so <laughs> funny. Offended. Look at this. Let's get this baby's statement. Just shine it, blind it with a light until it weeps. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah that's, the, that's the good stuff. The, yep. the, okay, so th- this this video has paused on a freeze frame of a guy in a suit. That oh, they talk to I, this guy. They call him the best dress. I'll just play it. <laughs> I will I will just play. Right, I wasn't right. planning to play this, but I will play it. Sir, you're the best dress uh, guy here. Did we have a good time today? Yeah, absolutely. What did you think of the uh, presentation? I thought it was nice. It was nice to get together with uh, a lot of people. It was a great turnout. And I uh, know that so many people still care. No, that guy. Okay, that 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 exact kind of person was mm-hmm. like the political class of like the town I grew up in. Like these yeah. are the people who were like, like this the, is the, thing, the guy. The yeah, yeah. Like the thing, the things they get up to were like, like there was a guy who was taking money from the sheriff's department to try to abolish the police so that he could install the sheriff's department as the only law enforcement like division in this oh, town yeah. while he tried to sell like. I, Oh god, I, th- that, yeah. that that is a kind yeah. of person I like. He has, he has strong, with. strong Republican city comptroller energy. Yeah, from, for like yeah. a ta- for like a town of thirteen thousand people. Yeah, he's dressed yeah. much like Ricky Gervais dressed in the like yeah. original office. Like yeah, dump, dumpy suit. I mean, he he fit. is literally the guy Ricky Gervais is making fun of. Yes, yeah, he is. So Beck paired his message of government accountability, as he framed it, with and this is what we're talking about the nine twelve project, which is what follows we surround them with nine principles and twelve values, which if followed would help bring your heart back to the mythical nine twelve, this moment in which America was was beautiful. This this we've gone from the fifties like. Like there's this there's this 20 year 15 20 year golden era to like we had one great day and if we could just get back to that everything will be fine <laughs> um so here's here's the nine value or nine principles sorry it's nine principles and 12 values i want you to hold me accountable if i fuck this up in the future the nine principles are number one america is good Number two, I believe in God, and he is the center of my life. Number three, I must always try to be a more honest person than I was yesterday. Number four, the family is sacred. My spouse and I are the ultimate authority, not the government. And I say this a lot, but in the Roman Empire, the the father of the family used to be able to execute his wife and children, and you're a fool if you think that's not what these people want things to be like. Um... Well, and they're slaves, too. That's also a very important Yeah, and the slaves are a critical aspect of this, yes. Uh, Number five, if you break the law, you pay the penalty. Justice is blind, and no one is above it. This is, by the way, confusingly a reference to all the people who lost their homes in the housing crash. Um, Uh, That's what he's talking about, that they didn't... They didn't, you know, you you can't, like, bail people out. Um, Number six, I have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but there is no guarantee of equal results. Number seven, I work hard for what I have, and I will share it with who I want to. Government cannot force me to be charitable. Number eight, it is not un-American for me to disagree with authority or to share my personal opinion. And number nine, the government works for me. I do not answer to them. They answer to me. Now... That's fun. There's there's some interesting things there, including 
the government can't force me to be charitable. You know, I, I will, which like the side of that, that is something that actually happened on nine twelve is a bunch of people showed up and volunteered to like at great personal cost because many of them got sick and died to help pull bodies out of the rubble and try to save people. Right. And that the, the government literally did not need to tell people to do that because a bunch of cops actually refused to go do anything at all. Yeah. At Ground well, Zero. And, 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 and yeah. The, the, like the, the government, the government knew about like, like the, 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 when when the government did do something, it was they they put a bunch of firefighters like inside yeah. of the range in which the dust was toxic, and then just fucking got them killed. Yeah, which and then know, spent the next fifty like, hour. We, we had to have John fucking Stewart fight for them to get some kind of recompense yep. from the yeah. federal government. Which credit where it's due is a legitimately cool thing that he helped do. But like, why did it yeah, fall yeah. upon the the Daily Show guy to, to <laughs> yeah. ensure that? The guy who was doing transphobic bits at the same time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it's Shout none of. Out, didn't Ted Cruz vote against healthcare benefits for these people? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which it, again, it's very funny that like the government can't force me to, to 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 be charitable. It's like, well, what that actually ends with is people actually volunteering and risking their lives, and then the government. Uh, the conservatives in the government callously voting to let them die in agony because like, well, why should I have to pay? All you yeah. did was rescue people during our country's darkest hour. Why should I have to pay? Like, it's this, it's amazing shit. Um, now, the, the, I'm sure you're curious about those 12 values. They're really boring. Like, it's boy, it's like Boy Scout shit. It's like honesty, reverence, thrift, courage. Like, you know, okay, it's not the, worth the thing, focusing on. The, the, yeah. the, the thing, I, this entire time, I think I've been thinking about, this is the exact naming scheme that, like, like if, if if you just walked up to someone on the street and like asked them what 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 are what are the nine principles and twelve values like this this sounds exactly like like this sounds exactly like what like a like a a a a, a mid level like a mid level Chinese bureaucrat would name their campaign to like make sure that <laughs> yeah, water yeah. restoration is done properly like it, it is the exact naming scheme of like like campaign style stuff in like fucking like post uh, post Maoist China. Actually, yeah, like I mean, well, and, and Glenn Beck is funny. Yeah, there's a lot to say about that and about Glenn Beck. But, um, you know, so I got that list of 12 principles from glennbeck.com. What I find interesting is that the principles as are up on his website right now, because this is a thing he still gets into every now and again, are somewhat different from the ones that he debuted on the episode of his show in which he introduced the 912 project. And I found the, the way he worded point eight. Point eight is it's not un-American for me to disagree with authority or to share my personal opinion i found the way he actually worded that in the show very interesting and i want to play that for you now because it's it's quite a bit different do you agree with this it's not un-american for anyone to disagree with my opinion but my opinion or others opinions may be anti-american anti-american rhetoric would be anything that's destructive to the constitution and our country as the founders understood it unless you want to change that there it is. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Ah, this, this, that, <laughs> yeah. That's the real good grievance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I respect your right to say anything unless you're disrespecting the founders, of course. Yeah, yeah. Which, um, can, which, can, which, can, which case, I'd, I'd, yeah, like SWAT teams will commence immediately, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. We, will, we are redditing the yeah. lynch mobs. Now, after introducing those principles, he asks his audience to mail him personal photographs so he can put them together into a big We Surround Them graphic, which you can find if you really want to. Um, it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> if you want to get an idea of, like, the people who were listening to Glenn Beck, that'll give it to you. Uh, now, here's what happens immediately after he gives the email address for people to send this to. Com. 
All right. The climate change people are pulling a page from Nazis Hitler youth. <laughs> what are your kids learning at school? Are we really surround them? <laughs> Perfect moment in American television. Yeah, well, it's, 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 like, it's, it's, it's really incredible, right? It's, it's also it's also things like you couldn't do this anymore, not because you not 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 actually because you can't say that about climate change, but because if you tried to say that about the Hitler Youth, people would get mad at you. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, yeah, you, you'll get in trouble. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah the Hitler Youth defenders will be uh, they were very very pro environment. I can hear Tucker Carlson saying that. Yeah, it's it's. Yeah. I just yeah. want to share with everyone that uh, Man by Number 5 by Bob the Builder hit the UK number one spot on September 12th, 2001. Wow. <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah. You know what, was... you know what, James? Never forget. <laughs> God. Uh, and the I queen Googled. was still alive then. She must have loved Mambo Number 5. Uh, I imagine she I bet there was a little bit of Monica room. by her side. <laughs> a little bit of Bob the Builder and the queen. Mm-hmm. A little bit of Rita's all she needed. Um, mm-hmm. Did okay. get it? Died. Very yeah. sad. <laughs> So, the the nine twelve project, as it kind of grew out of the We Surround Them campaign, if you kind of, I don't know, I've, I found it written online, I can't exactly confirm this, but it seems like it kind of started um, when Beck took a call on his talk radio show, and this is a little bit, a couple of years earlier, from a guy named Ed in New Haven, Connecticut, who expressed feeling outnumbered as a conservative on the American political stage, right? And that's that's really like what the the all of this kind of grew out of. It's this response to the feeling like outnumbered. Um, and I think that's an important thing to understand if you're trying to get to like the thing that the thing that they want to go back to when they talk about wanting to go back to 912 isn't anything to do with the actual terrorist attack. It's the fact that everyone was so frightened that they unthinkingly, uh, that they unthinkingly submitted to the right wing that was in power at the time. Right. Yeah. Like, like that's, it, it was, it that's was, oh, what nine twelve is to them. Yeah. Like it, it was, it was the last time conservatives were able to like effectively cancel like mass cult like they like the only time cancel culture has ever been real was like the dixie chicks and they could just do yeah. that like if, if you if you didn't start all of your concerts like if, if like Miley, Miley cyrus didn't go on stage and like say something about the troops at the beginning of a concert like they would just destroy you and you would never yeah. be heard from again yeah yeah it was it was lit- like legitimately scary to not be unthinkingly pro-America and like wildly so. And and that's what they want to get back to, right? Is the, the fear of actually questioning conservative hegemony. Um, so I want to play uh, a clip from the episode in which Glenn Beck uh, first introduces his 912 project to his audience of millions on March 15th, 2009. Here's how, here's how this introduction goes. Two, back. Hello, America. They're waiting. I'm backstage right now at Fox. I'm getting ready to show you that you are not alone. This, uh, <laughs> this is your country. You're still in control, but it seems today like nobody gets it. Now, that is a fascinatingly blatant statement of white conservative supremacy, right? It, you, you're in charge, but nobody gets it. They don't understand that you're supposed to be running things, right? Um, it's it, it's incredible how blatant it is. But it also, like, you do have to understand he's speaking to this real frustration. This is, like, where we get Trump is these millions of people are like, why don't they understand that we're supposed to be in charge? Um, the, the, there's, there's an incredibly – I don't know if you're going to get to this 
it like later. There's an, the next video on the fucking YouTube thing is from Vice. It's Glenn Beck is a conservative in exile after Trump. Oh yeah, and I was uh, like, can chat a little bit about that at the end. Oh, I'll do a whole yeah. Glenn Beck episode of Behind the Bastards, but I really I want to keep digging into this. So I'm gonna I'm gonna press play again here. You know. Uh, You've lived your life in a responsible way. You didn't take out a loan that didn't require any kind of per- proof of income, yet now you're being forced to bail those people out. You've been concerned about this country through the last administration and this administration. If you're like most people, both administrations, it's not about politics. You actually believe in something. And you thought for a while there your politicians did as well, and now you kind of realize, well, maybe, maybe they don't. When you come home after a hard day at work, all you want to do is put your feet up. All you want to do is just relax and just watch a little television, catch up with what's happening in the world. But every time you turn that television on, it just seems like the whole world is spinning out of control. War. Islamic extremism. Europe on the brink. Even pirates now. Closer to home, Mexico isn't safe for vacations or our kids anymore. 6,000 were killed or beheaded on our border just last year. And Phoenix now has the second highest rate of kidnapping in the world. So there's a lot going on there, but I think the thing that is most fascinating to me is that like the way he just blatantly is like cartel violence it's a problem because it's not safe for our kids to vacation yes. in mexico anymore yeah. <laughs> mexico only exists for spring break that's yes. uh well all, all problems are at their root about americans right like that's that's what's going on here well um, the other thing that's interesting to me is like that he, he 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 throws in the like europe under siege thing which was yeah. like like one of like the big like fascist things in like that period, like word for word, Europe under siege, like Fortress Europe shit. Yeah, this is when Andy Andy No started his like no ghost zone. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. I think so. Right around here, maybe yeah, a, a little bit later. Members of, members of my family who are extremely Caucasian live in in some of those no ghost zones. Like I lived in Europe in this period. It's, it's just so ridiculous. Yeah, and it's it's incoherent. Like if you look at the specifics of everything, because he's yelling about the financial crash because he has to be angry with it because half of his market is terrified and losing money or has have lost jobs and stuff as a result of the crash. Um, but you can't you can't portray it as a problem of like corporations rapaciously destroying and hollowing out the middle class. So instead, the problem is that like foreign. There's a line in there about how like foreign corporations are just treating Americans like a market, which is like, well, how do Americans treat everything? Like, of course, yeah. they treat them like a market. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's capitalism. Um, it's not very coherent. But like what is coherent is this sense of grievance, right? That we have been we as Americans have been specifically wronged. Um, we're not. And, and we as when he says Americans, obviously, he's only referring to a specific kind of American. Um, but yeah, I'm going to I'm going to press play again here. The forgotten man is you, the voice that no one seems to hear, just quietly saying, enforce the law, take responsibility for yourself, you can't have it all, and anybody who promised you that was a liar. The current economic downturn, the worst economic crisis, worst month of job loss, but something is happening in America, paradigm is about to change. Your friends and neighbors, Republicans, Democrats, Independents, they're all beginning to wake up and wonder, how did this happen to us? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the the word September 10th, 2001 just hit the screen as soon as he finishes that. But, I mean, what you're seeing in that is, like, the stirrings of what becomes Trumpism, you know? It's, it's yeah, very, very clear much so. in retrospect. Yeah, very much so. I know you said, yeah. too. Mm-hmm. 
And there's just uh, like photos of white people up on the left and right. Yeah, I've, and like it, one of the most hideous like two columns I've ever seen in a video. <laughs> it's yeah. one and a half of each. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <That's, whew. laughs> yeah. They, it's not done well. Their graphic design was. They, uh, science had just simply had simply not advanced to that level yet. Like I, I, um, I need people to understand this. There are supposed to be three lines of pictures scrolling across the screen. The middle line of, like, is fans, cut in. Yeah. yeah, the middle line is cut in half. There was half of one person's face on each side of of, of the screen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it a is, crime. Uh, and, and, and what they're what's being done here? What Beck is doing here is he's trying to take the anger and like that people still felt about 9-11 and turn it kind of towards in a different direction, right? Because what had actually happened on 9-11 was that uh, a group of terrorists had attacked the literal center of American capitalism um, and of the American military industrial complex, right? Those targets were were were, were picked specifically because of what they were. Um, the Twin Towers contained one-tenth of all office space in Manhattan. Their largest tenant was Morgan Stanley, which lost over 80% of its market value in the 2008 crash. Worst yet, in Beck's eyes, the victims of the attacks are all New Yorkers. Now, I don't know if you're not in the conservative media bubble, you may not get it, but like New Yorkers, oh, yeah. that was no. like a slur. <laughs> yeah, They're like, yeah, like yeah, literally yeah. like a slur to call somebody a New Yorker. Yeah, New um, York values, right? Here exactly. Can, so yeah. Beck can't focus on the actual victims of 9-11 because they are people that it is in his best interest to train his audience to to despise. So instead he focuses on how 9-11 was basically an act of disrespect against the this forgotten man, right? Who's now kind of surging up. Like that's what he's doing here, right? That's what you have to do if you're Glenn Beck because again, you can't actually focus on the real victims of this, which is why it's not incoherent ideologically for conservatives to talk the way they do about 9-12 and then vote not to help people who were first responders and had their fucking lungs filled with poison. Um, Yeah, it's good stuff. So obviously, because Beck has to thread this needle, he focuses instead on how the attack hit American prestige and confidence. I remember how picture-perfect the day was. There wasn't a cloud in the sky, and America seemed invincible. And yet, in the blink of an eye... That airplane appeared to hit a little bit down the building around the 50th or 60th floor. Again, it struck flush. The skies were filled with black clouds and our hearts were full of terror and fear. Absolute disaster. We realized for the first time how fragile we really were. Then something happened. So now it's September 12th, and the first image we see after disaster and destruction is a group of firefighters holding a gigantic American flag with roughly the footprint of a school bus, right? And this is this is good, right? This is, and also it's it's interesting that this is what he chooses as like the image of America like rebounding from this great defeat, as opposed to like I don't know firefighters pulling people out of the rubble and saving their lives. Like no, they got a big flag. That's how you know we're gonna be okay. Photo op, it's good. Yeah, it makes sense though, right? Like it, like the, the the actual lives are unimportant. The thing that's important to save is the image of the image yeah, of America, yeah, which is just the, the flag. Yeah, the yeah. center of the it's civic also on religion. The ground, so yeah, you know, well, yeah. look, my flag code. Yeah, <laughs> flag right. code is for thee, gonna, not us. I'm going to continue uh, here. Yeah, we promised ourselves that we would never forget. On September 12th, and for a short time after that, we really promised ourselves that we would focus on the things that were important. 
our family, our friends, the eternal principles that allowed America to become the world's beacon of freedom. I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... Now, I want to point out here the the choice of that clip. It's both because that was a very famous speech that Bush gave that really made his presidency in, in or at least the early part of it in a lot of ways. You could argue that a significant amount of the um, the kind of uh, the political capital that he expended invading Iraq came from this particular speech and generally how he handled the days after the attacks. But it's interesting that they picked this because it really is, it's very much in line with this this feeling and call, talking about the forgotten man, talking about they're not listening to us. They don't know that we're in trouble. What Bush is saying here is literal words are, um, I hear you. And the people who knock these towers down are going to hear you, right? You, your, your anger will have a, a reaction in the world, right? It will be met with fire and fury, right? Like that is that is the promise being made, and it's this this undercurrent and everything Beck's doing here of the thing that he is working with, the clay that he is molding, is the fact that these people don't feel listened to, and like and that they deserve to be listened to, and that the when they're angry at something, it should be hurt, right? Like that's that's the undercurrent. He's talking about family and togetherness, but like that's what he's actually promising people. I'm really interested in this. Like, uh, like I, I don't. This is probably like nine, twelve, or whenever when he's giving this speech. Um, mm-hmm. I think I always come back. It's weird given where conservatism has gone, right? And like he's taken this in very much a clash of civilizations mm-hmm. direction. Mm-hmm. But like Bush was giving like Islam is the fabric of America speeches mm-hmm. that week. He was speaking in mosques and two Muslims mm-hmm. and being like that like this is not a clash of civilizations. Yeah. Now yeah. obviously fucking he then went and fucking like killed millions of Muslims, right? Most of them innocent uh, civilians yeah. who had nothing to do with or nearly all of them, right? Uh but yeah, it's just interesting that like here's Bush who was giving this like this isn't a clash of civilizations thing and it's become a clash of civilizations thing like eight years later. Yeah. Yeah. And it's become, but in a very different way, right? Because one of the things that I think is happening here is the problems that Americans, regular Americans are facing in 2009 are this massive economic strife caused by predatory lending, outright fraudulent business practices by major banks. The fact that the legal system had been changed in order to allow this massive con to go on. Um, and then it had been followed by this massive crony capitalist bailout that ignored regular working people. Glenn doesn't want his viewers to focus on all of that, right? Because those yeah. are his backers, right? But he, what, so instead what he's doing is he He's taking, they feel disrespected and vulnerable because they have been, right? Now, there's unreasonable aspects to that, but they have been disrespected by the people who are stealing, like, all of the money in the country and fucking them over, too, and leaving their homes hollowed out, pill-addicted wastelands. Um, But you can't focus on that. Uh, The cure is... The cure that Beck offers them is not materially improving anyone's conditions. It's not altering the systems that people cannot prey upon others that way. It's by striking someone else. It's by striking back at that sense of aggrievement, right? It's by, this is what's going to turn into owning the libs, right? Just hurting the left. Conservatism now is purely about harming groups of people they view as opposed to them. Um, That's part of why trans people are so focused on by the right right now is that it's this symbol of liberalism to them. 
and they want to hurt that symbol, right? This is this is the answer Beck is offering, and it's going to be adopted by the thought leaders of conservatism. We don't need to focus on doing anything. Nothing can be done, right? Nothing can be done. The grift is running out. Collapse is coming. All that we can do is redirect the anger they feel at being fucked by us towards hurting other people. That's that's the magic that yeah. Beck is pulling off here. It's well, pretty it's cool. Just, it's interesting too. <laughs> I think pretty well. Yeah. Like. It's interesting to compare this, I think, to like both Reagan and um, like Reagan and Nixon, because this is very, very similar to Nixon talking about like the silent majority and the stuff mm-hmm. Reagan's doing. But it's like those people have an actual political project. Yeah. Like, like Re- Reagan, Reagan is trying to completely annihilate the welfare state, and like, you know, dude, like they have stuff they're trying to do. But like post Bush, it was like Bush was the time they tried to like do stuff, and it's like like Bush is so hated by this point that like like even Glenn Beck at the beginning of this is being like, well, we had concerns about the last administration too, and I was like, well, yeah, because he like yeah, just by by every conceivable metric, just completely like annihilated the United States. But yeah, it's like it, it's it's this interesting thing that like yeah, I was like like this is the first time they've talked like this. But the level of nihilism is just, like, so much, like, the, the politics has been emptied of content to, like, such a greater extent. And, and I, I think I think part of it, too, also what's happening here is that, like, there's, like, the, like the, the only thing left, like, for sort of, like, the capitalists who are backing back, like, the only thing left for them that they could possibly win is getting rid of Social Security. And they kind of, like, oh, and Obama gave them the chance to do it, and they kind of, like, blew it. But, like... They they don't like this isn't like the eighties where like they they actually have like there there's like there's there's tax rates to lower them like there, there's not actually anything for them really to do but they still have to sort of like maintain this constant vigilance against anyone even remotely trying to make the world better by taking away some of their power and like I th- I think that's like another angle of why all of this is just sort of like this like incredibly empty nihilism because that's like that that's the only politics you can have to defend a group of people who've won yep. Yeah. Well, that's a good note to end on. Um, I hope you have all enjoyed getting to meet Glenn Beck uh, in the 912 Project. I know I've enjoyed it. Uh, Goodbye. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So uh, I'm here today with uh, Aria and Anne. Uh, Aria, uh, she lives at the Eden House over there in Kenya and uh, is the chair of the management board at Trans Rescue and has uh, over 40 years of trans rights activism. And they're going to explain today a little bit of what Trans Rescue is, what Eden House is, and the threats and attacks that they've been facing in the last couple of days here. And so perhaps, Anne, you could explain what Eden House is. And I think I really liked in your website where you explained the difference between like a hidey hole and a haven. So if you could get into uh, that, that would be wonderful. Sure. Um, uh, Eden House is a uh, is a trans haven in, in Kenya. It's our primary mission is that we help trans people escape from dangerous places. That implies that we help them go somewhere because, of course, they have to have a safe place to go to, which means we often end up renting an apartment short term or doing something like that uh, while they get established in their new place. The problem, and of course, that that was getting expensive in Kenya where we can move a lot of people because some areas of Kenya are quite dangerous. But the major cities are not quite so dangerous. And so we move people into the major cities. But we were trying to be efficient and save money. And uh, we thought about making a a kind of temporary DOS house or a place with bunk beds to the ceiling and what have you. But we realized that would still cost us money. And it wouldn't be a very positive experience or affirming experience for the folks living in it. 
And um, we realized for that we could instead do a trans haven. That is a place where a person could come, and if they chose, never leave. Live there the rest of their life if they want. So when someone comes to uh, Eden House, uh, they can expect to receive help to find some income-producing activity, and as time goes on, they'll eventually be expected to contribute to the running of the house. Our plan is, we just started a month ago, but our plan is by about the end of the year to have the house no longer be requiring funds from us. And then we can do it again. Yeah, um, We have space for eight people when we get up to eight and it doesn't look like it's going to bleed as dry. We can do it again and we can. And in the end, we end up with something that I think many trans people in any country would love to have because that's, uh, uh, you know, that's something as long as I've been around, uh, there have been many discussions of building such places. Yeah, it's it's a very admirable project, and um, I know uh, Gary and I just visited the Tenacious Unicorn Ranch. I've been before, and it's really powerful to see like how empowering those spaces are and how um, they can help people. So I can see that you set up in, in Kenya. Was there a reason that you picked Kenya? It, was that was there was there a very large trans community there, or something that led you to? Uh, uh, frankly, in in such places. People often have, um, uh, there is the old um, queer, uh, I know somebody who knows somebody uh, system, and people have kind of webs of trust. And as a result, where we get people uh, coming from to ask us to move them is very irregular. Uh, There are some countries we never hear from and we certainly know there are queer people there we know the conditions are bad and would you know and they'd we'd be happy to move people but we don't have a lot of penetration in others like kenya we're in the network and people are telling uh, giving each other our our uh contact info um uh also we have some capabilities we had built up kind of a, a center there so we decided to focus on Kenya. Kenya is relatively easy to get into as far as visas and so on. And so um, it's a place we can send people when they when we might have trouble getting them into, uh, say, Europe or the United States. Um, we can with. And so uh, we're perfectly happy to end up with lots of folks. We'd like to make the place attractive enough that it's also a place that we even have people coming who aren't particularly in immediate danger. We'd be uh, we're uh, working from a philosophy of abundance that we want to grow. And we have a rule of we don't want to make a place that we wouldn't want to live ourselves. And um Honestly, Eden House is a nice place. It was um, the personal home of um, of a rather wealthy family. It it's, looks nice. Aria, would you maybe like to describe for us like, your experience at the house, what it's like, and, and how places like this are important so that people can understand? I, I, maybe if you could start with how you became aware of the Eden House and that, that this was an option that was available to you. Uh, okay. So, um 
I met, uh, um, um, we got in touch with Anne early this, uh, this year. Yes, early this year, around February, January, if I'm not wrong. So um, we, that was before Eden was formed. So we really had a long discussion on um, us moving from where we were. We were at the coast and things were really, really brutal at the coast side of Kenya. Like we were going a lot of stress, we even lost one of our friends. And um, yeah, it wasn't really good. It was really bad. So yeah, we had a discussion about moving to, um, to Eden House and it, it was a work in progress. So uh, we took some time working on that. So eventually it happened. And um, so we came to Eden House and it's a very beautiful place. I would agree with that. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, Anne also flew all the way to here because we were new here and uh, there were some things that uh, we needed done. And um, yeah, we are three of us currently in Eden House. Um, I got in touch with Anne and um, the rest of the team. Uh, there was Doris on board. Uh, actually, um, she's the person who was like, you know, responsible for the Malindi team. And um, yeah, the two sisters that I have, like, okay, they're my sisters because we've been through a lot of hell together. So yeah, um, we come all the way from Malindi also. Uh, we are here together. And um, so far, um, when we got here, um, the place is very beautiful, but just needed a little, you know, here and there decoration and, you know, clarifications and modifying and, you know, precautions whereby, you know, putting on security lights and um, the, the security wires. Yeah, still some things need to be upgraded, but, you know, um, we still need to resource for a lot uh, so that we can have some things being done. But so far, so good. Everything is good. I, I'd interject that uh, we're trying to foster a, a spirit of self-sufficiency. And so uh, we've been, um, we got everybody to make the furniture. So most yeah. of the furniture in the house has been made by the residents. And we're starting some various sort of fundraising, you know, or uh, income activities we're we've made a chicken coop and we're in the process of getting chickens uh, getting chickens and yes. uh and uh sewing machine and um uh one of our residents is a talented artist we're going to set her up to have a place to sell her artwork uh, yeah. so that's the kind of things we're doing thank you um Arya, I'm really curious, kind of on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. What are the things that you and the the other people who are at the uh, the Eden House do in order to like protect yourself? Like when you're going about town, when you're doing errands, um, is there like a degree of operational security that you have to keep in mind? Yeah, actually, we have a rule whereby uh, we don't go anywhere without letting each other know, especially if we are we're going to a long distance. Um. Putting in mind, we are very new into this area, so we don't know a lot of places. So currently, we are just uh, in the house trying to get to understand a few things. Actually, we've been doing um, um, the repairing. We have a we have a chicken coop at the back. It's kind of a small um, a small place whereby we needed to fix some things. So we've been working on that so that uh, we have the place uh, ready for the chicken when they are ready to come in. 
and also for me i've been um uh going around to see at least allocate some few places whereby you know uh we can feel safe like the hospitals i've been trying to get in touch with people like around here it I haven't been easy but uh, at least now i can say uh, i can go to an hospital that at least it's kind of familiar with me uh yeah we also have um a place where we buy um what are these things the the house supplies and all that stuff we are really trying as much as possible to like minimize our moving around from places to places to draw attention so we're just trying to go with time and see how people will accept us existing to this community so we don't want to bring any attentions whereby people will start asking questions like you know what's happening there or what's not happening there yeah yeah i noticed as well that the house used to belong to a politician is that right so it has some measures of sort of external physical security as well yeah which is good maybe we can talk about i know kenya is a big country and it differs vastly depending on where you are and who you're with uh how is the climate towards trans folks uh i haven't been in kenya for probably 10 15 years uh how, how is the climate towards trans people have things have it become like a big topic like a culture war thing recently uh or is it sort of can you explain i guess what it's like you were saying it seems like it can be a risk just to go outside which is pretty sad yeah um yeah it is a risk to go outside you know um here in kenya um in different sites of kenya like at the coast okay taking example at the coast site from where i come from it's um it's really bad for the trans community because now there they are very transphobic and homophobic people they, like most of the transphobic and homophobic people come at the coast side because um these are people that um tend to keep their culture and religious like you know more of a more of a key thing in uh, in someone's life more of like they use they use the quran and the bible to criticize to criticize the trans people and the gay community so being in that area it's very very bad and very very risky for trans community uh comparing to the other side of kenya i wouldn't say it's not risky but um uh, um their level of understanding of the trans community and the gay community it's um it's more of an it's more of an way that they are kind of confused not sure where to understand but it depends with also the area that you are you might find you end up um for example now where eden house is like for the few uh, for the month that we've been here the um, the feedback that i can say i have from the community around here is they're like more of um people that are calm and um more of people who are you um are more of um used to their own personal things they don't like you know uh, put their nose into that to, to to the things that they're not involved with if you get what i mean um in other towns um having new people people who like you know want to know why they are there and or, you know all that stuff but in this town that we have we are in eden house it's uh, it's kind of safe in a way that um people are not putting their nose in into us like more of wanting to know about us rather than they are welcoming us more of uh, you know um the landlord is kind of friendly i would say that um the the kibanda kibanda it's more of a small grocery shops so the kibandas around here the small grocery shop they are the people who are selling the you know the groceries and all that stuff they are friendly i haven't um I haven't uh, uh, incurred or you know engaged or seen any 
transphobic or homophobic reaction towards the man that have been here. Most of the people here are much of welcoming, like I would say that. And uh, yeah, it's really different from where I come from. Trust me, from the town that I come from, you can't walk with makeup or with anything that makes you look girlish or anything that makes you look resemble to a transgender or maybe gay or something. It will be a bad thing for you in the day. Yeah. The, a little bit of the geography of Kenya. Remember that um, uh, on Kenya's coast up in the north uh, is the border with Somalia and um, so the culture naturally mixes over the border. And um, uh, this is also an area where lots of folks are coming over because of the political instability in Somalia. And it's an area of Al-Shabaab uh, terrorist activity. So so that makes particularly the north part of the coast uh, a rather dangerous place. Yeah, just if people are interested, I know like the State Department sort of has a do not travel uh, like north of Lamu pretty much. Uh, so like people can see it on the map, but yeah, there are certainly areas where risk would be higher. Unfortunately, talking of that, like it it hasn't, uh, there've been some attacks, right? Threats um, against Eden House in the last couple of days. So uh if either of you would like to explain exactly what happened as far as you're comfortable, I think that would be great. Yeah, um, let me explain because I think I'm the right person to explain that. So, um, they're, 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 okay, this happened when Anne was around here, actually. We had an attack and uh, one of the windows, um, uh, people, uh, people break into the house, not inside the house, but inside the compound. And um, they tried getting in the house, but um, yeah, thank God um, the place has secured doors and windows. But they they took off uh, one of the glass from the window and uh, they tried to like, they had a stick that was, uh, uh, was, um, was holding um, yeah, a magnet on the end. So they were trying to use the stick with the magnet to pull out the keys so that they can have... Uh, and, and clear entrance into the house. But thank God we had removed the keys to where we used to, we normally used to put and uh, kept it to somewhere else. So the keys that we were where they were targeting, they were only the keys to the meter box and the fridge. So they took those. And um, yeah, I presume they later realized that they wouldn't go through with those because they were not the right keys. So the next thing we wake up in the morning, the magnet was down on the floor. And uh, we noticed that the, the window had uh, a piece of glass missing. So that was the first incident that happened. So we reported that to, um, to, the, to the landlord. And um, uh, previous day before uh, that happened, there was a neighbor who came by and um, they said that um, someone tried to break into their apartment. And uh, they were kind of curious because they never knew if people moved into this house, so they just wanted to check in what was going on. And uh, we kind uh, we kind of get into like you know know each other, and uh, they kind of gave us a warning, and that's why we removed the key. And uh, the the day when they came, they couldn't get in. So yeah, after Anne left, now this is a recent incident that well, happened. Well, then then the next night they came back and uh, we yes. found a couple of broken windows in the morning, like they tried to pry some windows out and ended up breaking the glass and gave up. But but yeah, that's uh, so 
at the time, I think we all just thought of this as ordinary, you know, theft activity. But yeah. this latest incident, it's pretty unclear, but this may be a, a more targeted attack. Yeah. And perhaps it's silly of me to even ask this, but could you speak a bit on what kind of help you can expect from law enforcement, if any? Um, I would say, if any, I would say, like, you see, uh, the place where we are staying, from the law enforcement, I would expect that they put some, like, you know, the um, they have a name that they put that, um, they're, they're the lights that normally the government is supposed to supply, like, you know, the what's that, what do they call there are these lights that they normally have to support from street it. lights yes yeah, street lights so the place yeah, that yeah, you are yeah. staying there's no street light so if if um if 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 a police was to ask me or um you know any security measures that were to be put like i would say that they put the street lights those would help at least there'll be more lights for like you know that should scare people away even if those people are thieves or anything you see so yeah, that was that's what I would say. Okay. Yeah. And I know two people were hurt in the most recent um sort of act of aggression, yes. right? Yes, yes. This was the day before yesterday. Okay. Are they doing okay? Yeah, they're fine. Actually, I'm one of them. I have okay, my I'm arm. Sorry to hear that. Yes, I'm one of them. I have my arm injured, but not really deep. The other one is asleep. Uh, she had a really bad injured back stabbed and uh, you know at the arm also catched so yeah eight stitches at the back really bad yeah i'm yeah. sorry yeah that's not yeah. good at all okay so that that's not great have you uh since the attack how is there like an ongoing aggression against you and it seems like someone's targeting the eden house right um if you ask me i would say it's uh, more of targeting the eden house because um, um, I don't understand why we would only be the only person, like the only people experiencing the same the same incident over and over. Like the next uh, the next houses, they don't complain in such incident. Like you know, like this guy literally. If um, I'm just picturing the fact that we had to go out and you know turn on the machine. And we saw this guy and he just bumped into us with a knife and cutting us off. So I'm just picturing if this guy was waiting for like, I'm just seeing it if he was waiting for more people to come so that they can attack coming inside the house. Why was he even standing there in the first place? Because we found him there and he was like, he came through me because I was the one who was in the front. So I, I just keep asking myself, like, why was he standing there? What was he waiting for? Yeah. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, and I'd point out that to get there, to get there, he had to climb a high stone wall topped yeah. with razor wire and get into position without triggering the motion detectors. Yeah. Uh, uh, which is, you know, not impossible to do, but it was, but they keep coming back. Yeah. 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 So I'm sure people listening will be upset by this. Is there a way that people can like express a solidarity or support you financially? Yes. We need funds to keep running the house. And in fact, uh, the guy escaped through a hole that was left only because we ran out of razor wire. We need funds to, to keep the project going. We need funds 
to also to support our primary work. We're continuing to get people out of places like Saudi Arabia. We have people we have people who are kind of uh, who are in mid travel right now, and we have other people in hidey holes in dangerous countries. And we want to move all those people, and we'd like to start. Uh, right now, we're not even taking new folks on because we just have such a backlog. I'd very much like to fix that situation. Um, so, for all these reasons, I, you know, we're doing, we're happy with what we're doing, but but we do need funds at the moment. Yeah. Let's get into that a little bit. Your uh, the the we here is trans rescue, right? Yeah. Yes. Trans Rescue is an, a nonprofit and you're based in Europe and you move trans people out of dangerous situations. That's correct. We're based in um we're based in the Netherlands. Uh we're a uh a Stichting, uh which is the uh in the US that would be a 501c3. We're an ANBI qualified Stichting, which basically is a 501c3. Okay. And you were telling us before we started the call that you think it costs you about 2,500 euros to move each person. Is that right? Yeah, that's the average. Um, the average is probably slightly going down because, of course, to move somebody into Eden House from the coast might be as cheap as uh, 80 bucks to send them a, a ticket and then a few hundred dollars of settling them in Eden House. On the other hand, getting people out of Saudi oftentimes means not only flying them, but sometimes flying our own personnel in and out on um, uh, often kind of crazy routes. So a person might find themselves a long way from either Saudi or uh, where they're finally going to end up. And as a result, and then... So, yeah, we end up having to spend a lot on plane tickets. And then we also, uh, sometimes this takes months. Um, we play paperwork games. Um, we are not people smugglers, but, but we certainly are helping people get to a country where they can actually claim asylum for the most part, which means, um, uh, you know, and successfully claim asylum. And that often means manipulating edge cases in the international travel system. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I can see why that would be expensive and complicated. Yeah. So it's great that people can donate to you there. Is there anything like I noticed you were asking before for some mutual aid help with your PR? Is that something you still need? Like, are there things people can do if maybe they don't have the means to yes, donate? Yes. We, we're a small organization. We're not very large, and and we actually are just cranking up our PR operation. Um, we could use a press list. We could use. We could also use uh, amplification from uh, organizations with more kind of online clout. We're basically a a little group of people, and for two years we operated as an informal group of of activists. Uh, we realized that was probably not ideal for this very serious work we're doing. And so last December, we reorganized as a, a proper shifting. But yeah, 
help with boosting our signal at the moment would be very useful. Anyone who can, you know, can spread the word of what's happened at Eden House, we would be very much appreciative. Yeah. Well, we can definitely do that. Yep. Hopefully other folks can too. It's just so people can uh, find you. It's trans underscore rescue on Twitter. It's trans underscore rescue on Twitter. It's trans rescue or dot org on the web. I will share that fundraiser link uh, when when this comes out. Aria, um, how have things been for you the last couple of days? Like, I, it must be pretty rough. Uh, I imagine not not feeling safe at the house. Yeah. Actually, actually, the advice that we got from the the landlord and um, the neighbor, there's a neighbor here, a lady, she came by and I have a number. I called her the day we had the incident and she came in the morning when we had a talk. So she suggested that we shouldn't be going out late nights. And uh, by 10, we make sure that all the doors are locked and yes, and stay safe inside. In case of anything, she asked me to call her. And also the landlord asked me if in case of anything, if I hear any movement or any suspicious thing happening outside the gates, I just give them a call. It's good. It's good that people are sticking up for you in yeah, your community. That's really good to hear. Yeah. Really good to yeah. hear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We appreciate that. And on their behalf, what y'all are doing is very important. And we're, you know, sorry that you're encountering this kind of resistance, but we hope we can help at least get the message out about what you were doing at Eden yeah. House. Yeah, much appreciated. Thank you. It's much yeah. appreciated. Um, I regret that we spent most of the time on security. I'm, I'm more, I'm excited about uh, many of the positive things we're doing. We're, you know, we're trying to set up uh, a place where trans people can live their lives and thrive and, and, yeah. uh, uh, have you know normal lives uh and, yeah let's talk uh, about that let's talk about um like uh, how many people do you have at the eden house right now if you're comfortable sharing that uh sure we just opened so we've got three people we've mm -hmm. got one more person who um went back to settle kind of settle his affairs and we'll be moving in mm -hmm. um and we have um and we've got space for eight at the moment okay. um we've had a couple other people inquire but but haven't like aren't there yet we're kind of excited by the space we've got because there's actually room around us to grow so we're expecting to get to get bigger um yeah i hope you do and um, how many people has trans rescue been able to help uh, like as an organization overall one way or the other we've we've moved about two dozen people of that uh, roughly half have been the serious kind of get people out of saudi arabia type moves the others have, have been uh folks that we helped in sort of less dramatic ways okay yeah that's a that's a very meaningful contribution to a lot of people's lives so that's great yeah i i get you know it's great uh uh at least one person lives locally and it's great to to kind of occasionally have him over for dinner or you know uh, and know that we got him out yeah that must be really nice and i think uh, yeah it's important not to just center like hatred but also about success yeah yeah absolutely so, yeah i love that 
And I, it's cool that like you have plans to grow. I've seen that you have agricultural areas around. So you're thinking of like growing some food around the house. And- Actually, we have brought some foods. We have some uh, vegetables like uh, spinach, cabbage, tomatoes, green paper. Oh, nice. We have grown those. Yes. Ooh, hey, Aya, did the, um, did the uh, garden survive the flood? Uh we had, actually, uh, I was about to tell you that actually when the water was coming in, the all all the spinach went and lied down and we were kind of worried. But when um, it stopped, <laughs> when the water stopped flowing down, and the sun came out, they kind of started going straight. So oh, I wouldn't oh, right. be much worried about that. But um, it's kind of freaking out because <laughs> they all went down and were like, they're dead. <laughs> we have a drainage <laughs> problem in front of the house and the yeah. And, uh, Recently, there was torrential rain. Uh, no, things I did not know about. spinach is hard to kill. <laughs> things I did not know about Kenya. It hails there. Oh, yeah. I did not expect, I did not like sort of imagine hail, but, but it hailed several times while I was there. And everybody was cold <laughs> yeah. while I was walking around in a t-shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can add some robust weather in Kenya for sure. And yeah, I'm looking at these pictures. It's great to see you guys are making your own furniture and doing all these things and, and really enjoying your time there as well as obviously we don't want to just focus on the threat. So hopefully you can go back to that. Hopefully people can support you. Uh, Aria, is there anywhere online people can find you? Do you have a Instagram or Twitter or anything like that? Yeah, I do have a Twitter account. My Twitter handle is at Rams. Hyphen Aria. How do you can you spell that out for us? R A M S. Okay. Hyphen. With an hyphen, lower hyphen. Mm-hmm. Underscore. Then, yeah. Yeah. Underscore yes, Aria. Then, then Aria. Yes. Okay. Great. Yeah. And um, it for for yourself and is it is it just Trans Rescue? Is there a personal one? Anything else you'd like to um, plug? Uh, my email, if someone wants to contact me, is Annie. A-N-N-I-E at transrescue.org. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Uh... And um, we have a contact form on the website as well. Uh, if people are interested in talking with us. Um, yeah. Okay. Great. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to get to before we finish up here? Yes. At uh, on Fridays, we have a, um, uh, we have office hours, so if you're in a country like the UK or the US and you would just like some advice or to explore your options, uh, that's another service we offer. As We're happy to talk with you on video about that. When would those be? They're at 6 p.m. Central European Summertime. Okay which I think works out to midday in the U.S. Okay. Some parts of the U.S. But, uh, yeah. People yeah. can look yeah. that up. And are you offering those primarily in English? Uh, those are primarily in English. If you speak Arabic and or uh, Farsi uh, or Urdu, contact us. We can arrange to have somebody who speaks those languages uh, talk with you. We maintain a telegram uh, group, uh, Trans Rescue. And if you get on there, you can use machine translation and talk with us oh, very as well. Cool. And we have Arabic speakers that monitor that. Amazing. Yeah, hopefully people can take advantage of that if they need it. 
All right, well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, like our platform is here for you. If you want to share anything else, if anything else happens, please let us know. And yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time. Aria, I hope well, things thank get better. You. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Thank you. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene. I've lost all on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to It Could Happen Here. This is Robert Evans, uh, and this is a podcast about things falling apart. Uh, And today, we definitely have a things, well, I don't know, hopefully not falling apart, but certainly 
getting fucked up episode for you. Um, this is going to be but a part of the world that uh, probably fairly few Americans spend much time thinking about. Um, it's certainly a conflict that's kind of been lost in everything that's happening in Ukraine right now. Um, but Armenia and Azerbaijan, their neighbor, have been at a state of more or less regular war since 2020, um, since longer than that, but this kind of latest wave of it started in 2020. Um, it was over a breakaway, re well, what's often referred to as a breakaway re region that both countries uh, claimed and that stayed kind of independent for a very long time uh, until a 2020 invasion by the Azeris in this area, which is majority Armenian. Um, and it was kind of a military disaster for the Armenian side. Uh, the war went very badly. A lot of troops were killed. A lot of territory was taken. And ever since, the Azeri military has been carrying out border strikes in and around areas that are kind of near their shared border with Armenia. Um, over the last 10 hours, as I record this, and, and I'm talking to you all on Monday, uh, the 13th of September, over the last about 10 hours, um, the Azeri military has launched a fairly unprecedented set of strikes within Armenian territory. Um, so not just kind of hitting border areas and not just hitting military targets, but hitting cities, hitting civilian uh, areas, trying to move troops across the border. There's video evidence of this. Um, to talk about what's happening, what's been happening in the past over the last couple of years and what's happening now, um, I'd like to welcome on Joe Kasabian. Joe, you will know from his podcast, Lions Led by Donkeys, uh, from his book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and uh, a number of other books that I think we'll talk about a little bit at the end here. Uh, from his appearances on the Behind the Bastard. Joe, you are an American citizen, but you're also Armenian, and you're currently in Armenia. Yeah. Um, I moved here a couple months ago permanently. Um, uh, citizenship is, we kind of have like our own repatriation laws, uh, but I'm still waiting on that. Um, and so to, to go off a couple of things that you said, we've been at a state of war effectively since the 90s, when we first gained yeah. independence from the Soviet Union. Um, without going into the incredibly complicated history of Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh, um, Artsakh still exists. Uh, they did not take all of it in 2020. Um, but 2020 was a military disaster for Armenia, uh, uh, unequivocally so. Uh, we lost over 4,000 people. Um, huge swaths of territory were, uh, their population became the victims of a regional genocide. Um, there are no Armenians uh, that have been confirmed to still be alive within that territory. Um, there's endless videos of Azeri troops beheading old men and women and, and destroying homes and cemeteries and churches. Um, and ever since uh, the war ended in 2020, a month has not gone by where um, either Artsakh or Armenia itself has not been attacked. Uh, we've probably lost over uh, 100 soldiers since then. Um, these are kids, they're conscripts. We have, um, military mandatory service here. Um, so these are 18, 19 year old kids doing their two years of service on top of the civilians that are currently being bombed. We, we don't know how many people are dead at the moment. Um, and it's, um, it's, it's truly aggravating. I mean, Armenians live with this all the time. It's a sword hanging over our heads when this is going to happen. Um, 2020 happened with, uh, unprecedented international support and not only support, but willing, uh, willingly ignoring it. Um, I mean, NATO powers helped Azerbaijan do this. 
um, Turkey and and Israel. Israel is, Israeli drone designers literally test flew a suicide drone into Armenian soldiers to sell it. Um, I mean, it's uh, it's it's honestly kind of I, I I don't know what what to say about it other than it's it, it should be another thing that the the world should be united against and yeah. they never will. No, I mean it's. It's so frustrating. One of the things that I have have had a lot of issue with, because obviously I, as as you are, am supportive of Ukrainian people's of attempts to, so far quite successful attempts, to stop Russia from taking over their homes. Um, but one of the things that's happened alongside this is a kind of lionization of a specific kind of Turkish drone, the, the Bayraktar, um, which was particularly effective in the opening stages of the war and military technology military equipment wonks can argue as to whether that was due to russian kind of tactical failures and operational failures or whether it was due to uh new realities about how drones function but yeah. one of the things that was ignored in all of this kind of fetishization of this drone and people raising money to buy more of them is that the drones were really combat tested for the first time massacring armenians yeah um yeah and it's i try not to get too mad when I see stuff like that because I understand why the Ukrainians yeah, are happy. Yeah, of, of course, and like of course. I, yeah, yeah, I should point out unequivocally, I support Ukraine's fight for independence. Just like I wish people um, supported ours. Um, and and the war, yeah. the wars effectively have the same kind of propaganda angle. Um, obviously, before Russia invaded Ukraine, they're talking about you know denazification or demilitarization. When when you look at their speeches and the rhetoric. It's that they believe that Ukraine does not have the right to exist and that Ukrainians yeah. are either are Russian or they also should not exist. And that's effectively what we're looking at, too. Um, this is why Armenians constantly compare what is happening now to 1915. Um, yeah. Azhbaijan continuously says they want Artsakh or Nagano-Karabakh. They, they want it back, but that's not what they're attacking right now. Um, if you look at the rhetoric of Aliyev and his government going all the way back to the 90s uh, when his dad was in charge and a few other people, um, their ideology is that Armenia is not a real state. Uh, they have claims over our capital, Yerevan. They have, ca- they have claims over the south where they're invading right now. And everywhere those soldiers go, they wipe out the local population of Armenians. Uh, there are no Armenian survivors in Hadrut or Shushi or any of these other places they took in 2020. They're, they do not exist. And ever since then, they've been purposefully going through and destroying any evidence that Armenians ever live there, which is ridiculous. Armenians have been living in these places since before Rome was fucking established. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, and this is obviously, we're talking about the Armenian genocide, which... Um, occurred during kind of the and concurrent to the kind of late stages of World War One, um, and uh, was unrecognized by the United States until what was that now two years ago, Joe? Yeah, that, that something Biden like that. Finally, became the first president, first U.S. president to recognize it, and and this is because we we've mentioned Turkey a couple of times. That there's a couple of reasons for this, but most of them boil down to not wanting to piss piss off the Turkish government. Um, the Turkish government has 
strong attitudes that essentially everybody in Anatolia is Turkish and always has been. <laughs> yes. Right? There were no Greeks, there were no Kurds, there were no Armenians. And this has led to, I mean, it, it's led to ethnic cleansings and genocides against the Armenians and against the Kurds. One of the things that was being done in Rojava um, that I found so compelling was was an attempt to educate, an attempt by the Kurds there to educate people who were joining the YPG about Kurdish complicity in the genocide against Armenia because they recognized themselves as victims of the same thing, you know, starting, I think, you know, I mean, all of the, it's hard to say starting in, right? Because we're trying to talk about concurrent conflicts, right. but they all go back, everything's going back quite a while. You, you mentioned Aliyev a little bit ago, and I, I don't want to talk about him. Um, we're talking about Ilham Aliyev, who's the current president of Azerbaijan, the fourth, uh, and of course the the son of the former leader, which is always a recipe for a good uh, functional democracy. Uh, also, his um, wife is vice president. <laughs> yeah, and his uh, wife is vice yeah. president, which is nice. It's just like uh, it's just like House of Cards. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's the Kevin Spacey. Um, yeah, his his and, attitude and, and rhetoric towards Armenians uh, in general is eliminationist at best. Yeah, um, like. Uh, he's, I mean, the, the country's put out stamps that show Armenia being fumigated, uh, like dirt went during the height of the pandemic, mm-hmm. which like as a genocide scholar, you know, generally when I see yeah. a, a picture of a place being gassed, I get suspicious. Um, uh, they've talked, they've talked about, uh, how it was a good thing that in the nineties, Armenians were driven from Baku and the Baku program, uh, pogroms and a few other places, um, I mean, it, weren't there like literally like some of those trophies at arms shows and stuff, yeah. with, like pieces of, of captured equipment with blood on it and stuff? Yeah. And they also had yeah. um, honestly one of the weirdest like it's incredibly offensive and racist. Uh, the um, these um, caricatures of our of Armenian soldiers who like at the same time, they're like racist towards Armenians, but also vaguely anti-Semitic. Like they looked like. Uh, a character of a Jewish person that come out of Der Sturmer uh, with like, yeah. you know, and I understand how stereotypically people think uh, uh, Armenians look in like this racist art where we have, you know, big hooked noses and big eyebrows and things like that, uh, which admittedly, I know I meet both of those personally, but <laughs> that's besides yeah. the point of like, if you look at the pictures and they were taken down because like, even like Israel was like, Ooh, that's a bit much. And like, they yeah. helped that happen. Um, but like also to talk, you can't talk about Azerbaijan without talking about Turkey because they have this ideology that's like two people, one state. They, they do believe in like pan Turanism, uh, especially Erdogan. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's been ever, ever since he's gone like full fascist, that's something he's been hammering the drum on. And like, this is an extension of that. He's effectively a neo-Ottomanist. He wants to reunite the Ottoman yeah. empire, which is fucking insane. But also well, has real insane, life things, you know. But also to bring us, you know, to the conflict that Americans are more focusing on, as we've talked about before, this is another similarity between what Russia's doing in Ukraine and what Azerbaijan and Turkey are doing in Armenia. They're both these kind of um, redemptionist dreams of people who want to bring back some sort of lost imperial splendor, right? And are are, are utilizing kind of the tactics that the tactics of, of genocide in order to, to try to make that happen. Yeah. Uh, I think for Turkey, it's a lot of this lost splendor, especially as their economy shits itself mm-hmm. from mismanagement. And I think for Azerbaijan, yeah. it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. 
in the 90s, uh, when we fought the first uh, Karabakh War, Armenia won. Um, I mean, it wasn't from being military, military, militarily superior or having more money. It had to do with two largely unorganized forces in the fallout of the Soviet Union, and Armenia ended up winning. Um, and ever since then, that loss has been something of uh, like uh, national... It's, like, it's kind of like the national mythos of Azerbaijan, because before yeah. then, Azerbaijan as a national identity simply didn't exist. It's relatively yeah. new. Um, and that loss in that war became the defining moment. That's where um, the loss to Armenia was internalized and it, like it became school curriculum that Armenians were the, were at fault for everything. We're subhuman. We've been compared to cockroaches. Like for instance, if you have say my last name, you cannot legally enter the country of Azerbaijan. Like you cannot enter that country with an Armenian last name. Uh, it's uh, racism and fascism is state doctrine there. So when, you know, their oil production, kicked back up from after the war damages and after the fallout of the Soviet Union on top of military reforms that have been lasting for 30 years. They're the ones on the upswing now, not Turkey, in my opinion. And it also helps they're fighting someone like Armenia, which, you know, Armenians, the, we have military history and everything, but we have no fucking money. We have no natural resources. Yeah. We have no allies. We have, no one's going to airdrop pallets of fucking HIMARS in Yerevan. Like nobody's coming to help yeah. us. We have AKs that fought in the first war. Uh, we have BMP ones that have probably seen more combat than most people who are still alive. That's a an armored personnel carrier, yeah. essentially. We we yeah. have nothing. Um, yeah. I, I'm I'm not going to speak about the capabilities of the Armenian military, but like you can imagine what a small landlocked country with a small population, not a lot of money, can field. It's not a lot. Um, yeah, it, it it's not a lot, and this kind of gets us to another topic that has to be broached with is which is kind of talking about the relationship of Russia to all this because one of the things that's very frustrating about this conflict is that Americans particularly tend to want things very simply. So you hear you've got a Russian client state, uh, which is how it's not what Armenia is. I'm not saying that, Joe, obviously, but is is how it's easy to of kind course. of, especially like kind of in the boil out sort of break things out as is like, okay, you've got this state backed by Russia and then you've got this other state fighting it that's backed by Turkey. Well, Turkey's part of NATO. They're part of, you know, the fight against Russia. So they must be the good guys. And none of that's accurate. No, absolutely um, not. No. But I think it's, I think it's important to explain why. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's really hard to explain Armenian Russia's relationship other than imperialism. Um, mm -hmm. obviously Armenia has been conquered by countless countries throughout our fucking long history, but the most recent one being the Soviet Union, uh, which we did not join willingly. Um, and then after the fall of the Soviet Union, the Russian Federation, um, we're solidly within Russia's sphere of influence and it's by no active choice of ours. We're members of the CTSO, we're members of the Eurasian Economic Union, and neither of those were by choice. We were strong armed into it because there's no, there's nothing else. There's no other option. Um, and as far as it goes, is this like the brotherly relationship or this client state, uh, it, mm -hmm. it would be exactly like someone blaming Ukraine for what happened in Maidan or blaming Ukraine for what happened in 2014 or ha what happened now, because they're trying to get away from that. I mean, we can't, we don't have the resources to do it. I just, just for an example of how Armenia plays like tight ropes, this shit. Never once have we voted in favor of Russia during this war. We like they like our representatives to the UN, our our Ministry of Foreign Affairs, our Prime Minister is solidly neutral because that's the best he can do. Um, right? You know, it, 
he's either voted against, uh, he's voted, uh, he's abstained. He's never voted for to support Russia during this war at all. Um, now, obviously, back in 2014, there was a different Armenia. Um, we had a, a pro-EU movement here that was quite strong. This is before I lived here, of course, um, that voted to declare our intentions to want to join the EU. I believe this is under President Serg Sargissian. Um, and it, it passed overwhelmingly in the popular vote uh, because unlike the people invading us, we are a free and fair democracy with the freedom of speech and expression and everything else that people like to claim they want to defend, but they don't. Um, and after a five-minute meeting with Putin, uh, it was gone. There was no more referendum, and we decided not to join the EU anymore. By we, I mean the president. After that, we had our Velvet Revolution in 2018, which got rid of him um, and distanced ourselves from Russia as much as we realistically could. So in 2014, I believe, uh, for instance, Armenia uh, kind of slightly supported Russia when it came to annexing Crimea. And now you can kind of see why. Uh, the president was a fucking stooge. That's not the case anymore. We now have a parliamentary system. And uh, as much as I, I'm not the biggest fan of Prime Minister Pashinyan, he's not that guy. Uh, that's not like the 2014 to 2020 in Armenia is a different fucking world. Um, and it, I know, like, like you said, people really like to simplify these things. They want this to be a team sport. They want this to be NATO versus Russia and you know, yeah. the, people like Belarus or whoever else. But you know, there's, a, there's a pretty big fucking difference here. We have not actively supported this war. There has been anti-war protests outside my fucking window since the war has started. You, Ukrainians have flooded here by the thousands, and they have met nothing but Armenians who have welcomed them with open arms. Russians have come too, and we're not the biggest fans of them, but what can you do about it? <laughs> um, you know, like, yeah, it, we're, we're solidly neutral in this. And, and it's one of the things that fucking, dr and I mean, granted, neutral government wise, people wise, absolutely yeah. we're not neutral. Um, and I, one of the things that pisses me off the most is that people can see the realities of the war in Ukraine, where they can see right through Russian propaganda when it's like demilitarization, denazification, whatever. And they can see on its face that's complete and utter bullshit. But like when, because, uh, you know, Ukraine is fighting for their sovereignty, their independence, and the right to exist that we all have. Um, and when it comes to us, we don't get that. They're like, oh, well, we're calling for both sides to de-escalate and maybe Armenia shouldn't have fucking started this. We haven't done anything. It was fucking midnight yeah. last night and the South started being bombed. What the fuck is there to be de-escalated? You can't de-escalate self-defense. So you have what is a really uncomfortable situation and one that a lot of people don't like talking about the reality of because essentially when you have a country like Azerbaijan that is insisting on repeatedly violating the territory of its neighbor... Um, and that has proven a not just a willingness, but an eagerness to engage in, engage in acts of ethnic cleansing and genocide. You have two options for dealing with that, other than let them do it, right? Option one is send in peacekeepers to stop the aggression. Now, Russia has troops that were called peacekeepers <laughs> in the area. Um, you know, th there's you could debate prior to the invasion of Ukraine how good they were at that job. Um, but they certainly are not capable of doing it now. Um, so then the question is, okay, who, el who, what who else's peacekeepers are going to come in, right? And if that's not a realistic solution and you don't want to let Azerbaijan just do a genocide, 
then what you do is you give them weapons. Yes. Armenia weapons, not Azerbaijan. Oh, people um, are already doing that part, unfortunately. The U.S. and NATO yeah, included. Yes. Yeah, indeed. Um, and again, there's this, we're all kind of, in terms of like the discourse around this in the United States, living in the shadow of the war on terror, in which an irresponsible quantity of weapons were handed out to an irresponsible variety of groups, um, and many of them went to bad ends in bad places. Um, the reality is that, you know, we're sitting on a fucking stockpile of weapons here in the United States as tall as the sky and handing over a tiny percent of that. When people talk about, like, we're giving this much aid to Ukraine, we're not spending that much cash straight on aid to Ukraine. We're picking up shit we have in mothballs and we'll ha- we're handing it to them right. because we've spent all of our treasure on, on on a pile of guns larger than you can conceive of in terms of its actual size and weight. Um... And I don't know, like, when when I think about what is to be fucking done here, realistically, um, I would like for Armenia to have access to javelins and IMARs and some fucking stingers. Um, One of the things that pisses me off is, like like you said, there's two options here. You do nothing and you're complicit mm -hmm. in a genocide. That's what this is. Like, it's it's like being silent in, you know, uh, in in 1945. It's being silent in 1915. It's being silent in Rwanda. We were silent during Mm -hmm. most of those things, and we saw how they all ended. We sure were. (laughs) Like... there's only one um, way this fucking ends if we don't get guns, and that's with a lot of dead well, that, Armenians. That 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 and by, can, by supporting Azerbaijan or sitting out, that is what you explicitly support is thousands and thousands of dead civilians. Like that's the only yeah. way this ends. And it is again, I and I, I hate keep that we keep going back to Ukraine, but it's relevant because it's the uh, the, uh, the it's the conflict that people are actually focusing on. The people who are counter on on anti side providing weapons to the Ukrainian military and make claims about corruption, which they could also make about the Armenian government, sure, um, and claims about you know arms trafficking and all that stuff. But so far, and Ukraine, by the way, is a country with a deeper history of corruption, significantly um, than yeah. the Armenian government, even. Yeah. Um, for, that, for all we of haven't its seen faults, evidence. The Armenian yeah. government is less corrupt than Ukraine's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you haven't seen a ton of that happening. What you have seen is the weapons that have been handed to them blowing up invaders' tanks and aircraft. Um, and the sheer quantity that has been destroyed is evidence that that weaponry has been used pretty responsibly. And when you are talking about a group of people facing annihilation, I'm simply not worried that they're going to sell their stingers to fucking ISIS or wherever. Right. Like, that's, Who the that's fuck are we going to sell them to? We have Turkey on one side right. and Azerbaijan on the other. Yeah. Are we going to sell them to Georgia? That's actually fine. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's... I, I don't know. I I think people are fucking yeah. gutless. Um, you saw this happen in February before, or in January before the war in Ukraine started when people yeah. are like, oh, weapons are only going to make it worse. No, they're fucking not. You know what's worse than an, <laughs> than an armed population defending itself is an unarmed one being murdered anyway. And we, in case nobody paid attention, because they probably didn't, you can go back and look at the video footage of what happens to unarmed Armenians in 2020. And it's the same fucking yeah. shit ISIS did to Yazidis. It's the same fucking shit they did to Kurds. And it's the same fucking shit that will happen again if we do not get what we need to defend ourselves. And I don't give a fuck if you don't like Russia. I don't fucking like Russia either. But it's the reality that we live in. If, if you're if you're fucking intelligent yeah. enough to realize the, the 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 diplomacy and geopolitics of how Ukraine ended up in the war that they're in now, you should understand why we are in the situation that we are in too. 
You cannot realistically believe we deserve what is happening unless you also believe Ukraine deserves what's happening to them. It's yeah, impossible. I, I don't know. This is obviously, how could this not be like emotional? And, and, and it is just feeling like I can't, and it must be so much worse, obviously, just being there. But like this, this feeling of a fucking train coming at you and um, people aren't going to do shit because there's this fucking problem with optics. And it's more complicated when we talk about, I'm talking about, when I talk about optics, I guess we're talking about discourse. When it comes about like why politically the United States is unlikely to do anything like what we've suggested, it's more complicated than that. And a decent amount of it comes down to the fact that we have, what is it, 13 nuclear weapons stationed in Turkey right now. Yep, and in Sirlik, um, which pretty, is land yeah. stolen from Armenians from the genocide. Mm-hmm. Yep. Great stuff, America. Well yeah. done. <laughs> we really knocked it out of the park. What is it that people can do to help outside of you know trying to become informed about the conflict which I think we can talk about some sources at the end of this. Are there places, you know, Red Cross style things that people can donate to, to help to the extent that that kind of thing is helpful? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, you know, generally uh, crowdfunding for weapon systems is illegal unless you're Ukraine nowadays. So yeah, I'm, I'm thinking more about medical yeah. aid. Um, yeah. The Armenian Red Cross is always a good option. They helped a lot in 2020. Yeah. They still help now. We still have a ton of internally displaced people. Um, there's also the Hindramin fund, which directly funds, uh, wounded servicemen because we really don't have a VA exactly here. Um, there's, uh, quite a few other ones, but the, the Armenian Red Cross is of course, uh, the most reliable and easy to donate if you're in the West for sure. You don't have to navigate any confusing Armenian language websites because it's, it's hard and Armenia isn't great at the internet. So like most of them don't have translations. (laughs) Um, yeah, but you know, it's, yeah, I, I understand I'm a little bit more emotional than most people probably hear me on podcasts, but like, um, I'm mad. How could you I, not? I'm be? mad. I'm, yeah. I'm fucking frustrated. Um, I don't know how much longer people can let this kind of thing happen. Um, yeah. I, I hope the EU's uh, gas this winter is fucking worth it because this is what you got. This is what that deal got us. So I, I hope you're nice and warm in the fucking winter because we probably won't have power or we'll have more dead or whatever. But I'm real glad you pivoted away from Russian gas and sent a deal fucking Azerbaijan, you spineless fucks. <laughs> and it's, uh, I mean, the, the, it goes, it's, the spinelessness is deeper than that, right? Because the reason why the fucking gas crunch that led to that deal happened in the first place was, among a number of things, years of ceding to... Russian government aggression in places like Georgia and in yeah. places like Ukraine. And and you've got that, you know, here you have the invasion by Azerbaijan almost two, like two years ago now. And then there's another um, one in 2016 before any, that. Yeah. And and no pushback, right? None. And when you zero. This is this is the thing is, and this is not a popular kind of thing to go to talk about on the left, but but it's true. If you want to pay attention to why why that whole World War II situation got so goddamn bad. A big part of it is there not being any kind of effective rules-based international order to stop bigger countries, or at least more aggressive ones, from fucking with their neighbors. And one of the things we were supposed to have learned from that war is that you don't let people do that. It's bad. 
Yeah, um, and it then we be did that a hard bunch to explain of it, right? to people like, yeah, that yeah, when a motherfucker we did a shows bunch up, of it, yeah, yeah, like it shouldn't be that hard. Ticks, I don't care what your politics is. I mean, everybody knows that we're both very left wing, but when someone comes and continuously fucks with you, the only way to make them stop is by hitting yeah. them in the goddamn face until they realize it's not a good idea. Like, and this, I is, don't care. Like, diplomacy doesn't work when one side only wants you dead. You can't debate my right to live or my neighbor's right to live or these kids right to live or their fucking schools bombed right now. You, there's no debate to be had. You have to hit them until they fucking stop. There's like, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. There's not going to be any de-escalation of fucking genocide. Like that's not how this works. People tend to get this in the immediate sense when you're talking about, you know, some fucking bigot in front of you. Everybody, everybody loves, uh, you know, cheering on a video of some guy, you know, dropping a racial slur and getting knocked to the ground. Obviously, those are a lot right, of fun. Right, those are great. <laughs> um, but the, 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 the moral is that if you let assholes, the actual moral of, like, why it's important to punch Nazis in the face when they're doing Nazi shit is that if you just let them do Nazi shit and you try to, like, appease them and calm them down, you'll often calm them down here and there and they'll, like, back off, but they'll have gotten a little bit more. They'll have gotten a little bit of what they want. They'll have gotten a little bit further and they just keep making shit worse until somebody actually does fucking drop them. And it's the same with, you know, and again, I, I, we just talked about what the great lesson of World War II should have been. And the thing that actually happened is the generation that took power in the United States and in a lot of other Western countries after that, not exclusively the West, but I think we're talking about our, right. our, our people here, um, immediately went and fucked around and carried out acts of aggression all over the world. Um, but that doesn't mean the basic lesson is bad. The lesson is don't let people, we should not have been allowed to do that. Um, but we shouldn't like, that should not be a thing that the world accepts. Like the, 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 you can't just sit back and be like, oh, well, that country's going to go do a genocide now, but it's far away. So there's nothing to be done. Um, right. other than or continue to buy the oil of the people doing the genocide and thereby fund the genocide. Right. Um, like it's it's fucking unconscionable, man. Like and e even if you want to look at this as like the West also fucked around during the Cold War, which like, yeah, you know, what stopped sure them? everybody did. You know, it what stopped them. Fuck around. Like, they yeah. didn't fuck around so much in Southeast Asia after the U.S. got punched in the fucking face in Vietnam, did they? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Like, there was a lot less fuckery. This shouldn't, this um, shouldn't be this fucking complicated. I don't I don't care yeah. what political ideology you subscribe to. Like it's self-defense. Like yeah, it's collective it's self mutual self-defense when and, we and need help. You give us fucking help. Like, yeah, and it, it, <laughs> it shouldn't be that fucking hard. It, it, I mean, to be fair for, for some people it will never truly matter um, because they don't see countries like Armenia or countries like Azerbaijan as having agency to do their own things and want their own things. Um, and if that is you, I, I hope to see your house on CNN one day. Um, but like, you know, that does, there should be like, that sounds like, um, like an old Russian curse, like may yeah. your house be on CNN. I, I believe one day. it's from the Balkans. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Some little old lady saying that to you. Like we, we have the right to freedom as much as anyone else. And, um, not only that we've achieved it. Like Armenia is a, is a moderately progressive place. I mean, we're still working on some things. We have the freest democracy in the region. Um, we have great standard of living for most people, um, and it was only getting better. This is a place that has freer and fairer elections than virtually anyone else over here, to include Russia, to include fucking Ukraine, to include Turkey, yeah. to include all these places. 
that people insist are worth defending. I'm just curious why we're not. Like, why are like why are Armenians less than? What did we ever fucking do to deserve this? It's it's incredibly depressing. Um, I'm, maybe yeah. we're not the right shade of white. I don't I don't fucking know anymore, man. Like, it's yeah, it, it's it's really weird to me. Um, even like internationally, uh, uh, geopolitically. You know, uh, the Secretary of State Blinken uh, urged both sides to de-escalate. Suck my fucking dick. Like, mm-hmm. What are we de-escalating? They're invading us. I would like yeah. to ask Al-Qaeda. Or, <laughs> How I would do like to ask you the, invest, de-escalate I would that. really like to ask the city of New York mm-hmm. to de-escalate when planes flew into the World Trade Center. Like, yeah. get the fuck out of here. Like, how do you de-escalate this? They're bombing cities. Like, it, it, it's, it's maddening. Um and it's not going to end. It is. It's not going to end until someone fucking ends it. We can't. Uh, we, yeah. we just had a generationally destroying war two years ago that we've not recovered from. We have a, an entire society that's dealing with various different forms of PTSD. Um, we don't have the, the institutions to take care of all of the victims from two years ago. Um, we didn't get any help then either. And we're not going to get any help now. I, uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I think, again, there's this, there's this tendency towards isolationism in the left brought on by the Iraq war. But none of this, if nothing is done, if there's no international response to this, and if the Azeris aren't, aren't stopped by, you know, in autochthonic resistance, um, then it won't stop with Armenia, because violence of this sort never does. There's a, there's a book... I'm interested in your thoughts on it, actually, Joe, but I found it quite illuminating a a number of years ago. An Inconvenient Genocide by Adam Hochschild, which is about Mm. the Armenian genocide and its influence on Hitler, making the point that even though Hitler (laughs) never was anywhere close to Armenia, neither were any fucking German troops, for that matter, particularly close. Oh, they sure um, were. Uh, Imperial German troops uh, were were very much in charge of a lot of different death squads. Uh, It's 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 a weird story. Hitler's Hitler's Germany. Yeah, of course. I, I apologize. I, I meant I meant the Wehrmacht. To be fair, they but tried. Not, yeah. <laughs> the, the, but the, the point that Hochschild was making was that Hitler was not engaged in the Armenian genocide, but he paid attention to it. And the fact that the the Young Turks got away with it, yeah, um, and and got to take that take land that, as you pointed out, is currently occupied by some U.S. nuclear warheads, um, was was part of what emboldened him to do not just the Holocaust, but everything he did in Europe. And there was a line specifically in reference to the Holocaust from Hitler, I believe it was during his table talk, that was like, essentially he was saying, well, of course we'll get away with it. Nobody remembers Armenians anymore. Yeah, it's literally like, on the wall yeah, of our genocide Did anyone do anything here. to Turkey? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's the thing that's is like, fucking it goes back to 2020, to right? Like everybody was saying, because I mean, I understand the politics behind Artsakh are messy for people who are not from this region, and I, I'm, I don't have enough time to go into them. The uh, majority uh, Armenian population that was given to Azerbaijan by the Soviet Union with absolutely no process, and they attempted to vote to join Armenia while we were still in the Soviet Union, which is well within the rights, according to the Soviet Union's constitution, if such rights functionally existed, which they did not. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what started the first war. But... In 2020, uh, every war has been about that ever since, effectively. 
uh, at least politically on its surface, because internationally is recognized as part of Azerbaijan um, because they go off old Soviet maps for fucking reasons. I don't know. I mean, we could talk about Sykes-Picot. Yeah, exactly. Too, but, um, um, but like, you know, in 2020, people were saying that like, oh, if this will all end if Armenia simply gives up Artsakh, which we don't claim Artsakh. Nobody, I mean, some, some people do. The government does not. Um, we don't recognize it as an independent country either, which they themselves have declared themselves. It's, it's messy, I understand. But um, mm-hmm. it's, it's not within the Republic of Armenia to negotiate the non-existence of the Republic of Artsakh. That is their right to self-determination. That is politically what the government believes. Now, they were saying, well, now that these areas have been taken over by Azerbaijan, we can finally move towards peace. There was fucking peace talks a week ago. The, the, the Prime Minister Pashinyan met with Aliyev, I believe in Belgium. I don't, I'm not entirely sure. They literally met a week ago. Maybe it was two weeks ago. Like it, it was very recent. But the thing is, is every time this peace process starts again, this happens. Because it's not about Arsakh. It's not about Nagano-Karabakh. It's not about any of these. It's, it's about our right, our fundamental right to exist. They do not believe in it. Like it's not just like it wasn't about um, Jews uh, being involved in business. It wasn't about Jews no. marrying Germans. It was about their fundamental right to exist. Like yeah. it, it's I, it's all it is. It, it's the same could be said for Palestinians. This is this isn't about pa- Palestinians. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, fucking, speaking of which, fucking Israelis are just, you, just placing Armenians in Palestine as well. Yeah. Like it's yeah. it's not about so it's not about these these small little uh, yeah. nibbles that they're taking. It's not about the freedom of movement. It's not about your right to date someone, which came up recently. They made some Israeli law against that. You have to declare yeah. your romantic intentions before you go into the West Bank or whatever. Like yeah. it's not about those things. Those are maybe means maybe that'll to make end. it easier to maybe that'll make it easier to get the uh, the American leftists on this one, right? No, no, guys, is, is Israel's the bad yeah. the bad guys here? We yeah. can do this. Fuck, even Noam Chomsky <laughs> wouldn't deny this genocide. Yeah, actually, yeah, that's there you not, go. That's not entirely true. He probably would, but um, um, it, it, the thing is, is it's not about these small nibbles. It's not about your right to do X or your right to do Y. It's not about. Art socks, right? The freedom. It's, 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 they don't believe you should exist. And it, they will take and take and take and take until you're fucking powerless and they can wipe you out. That is their yeah. goal. I mean, you can see that in Palestine. You can see that in Arsakh. You can see that increasingly in Armenia. You can see that's what Russia's goal was in Ukraine. It was Russia's goal in Georgia. Like, it's how imperialism fucking works. It doesn't have to have an American flag or a British flag over it for that to be what it's called. It's genocidal imperialism. And like, if, if you're too dumb to fucking see that, I don't know what else to tell you. Like, I, I don't know how else easy. Do you need me to draw yeah. it in fucking crayon? Like, yeah. I, I and I, I, I think we're both getting angry here primarily at, at groups of people who I don't believe are the, the primary listeners that we'll have on this. Not necessarily, um, no, but, but like, I, but I, but I get it. Like, yeah. no, it's, it's this constant fucking thing you have whenever there's a war anywhere and you are like, well, what is the solution? Well, the people who are the victims need to have access to weapons. Right. Um, yeah. And, and if you're, and if you're saying, which I agree with sending in us or whatever troops to X country usually doesn't work out. Then what are the, what is the option? Give them fucking weapons. Yeah. And honestly, um, like what would make the situation worse if we had American soldiers here? Like, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I just don't. I just don't think that's a thing that logistically the U.S. military can do. Well, oh, it would never happen. It's a whole. That's have, a mess. There's yeah, not even a base here. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, like there's some situations where yes, military assistance could make a situation worse. Bad things. Yeah will happen. You cannot deploy large amounts of weapons or soldiers to a specific area without there being some kind of negative effects. However, you have sure. to realistically weigh the good and the bad. Yeah, the 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 world military, the allies bombed Germany flat, but they stopped the fucking Holocaust. Yeah. yeah. We blew up a, a fair amount of people in the 90s. We stopped the genocide. Like we blew mm-hmm. up the shit out of ISIS, and there was also some civilian casualties, which fucking sucked. Quite a few. But you yeah. stopped the Yazidi genocide with the assistance of the yep. PKK and the, and the YPG and the YPJ. Like you cannot unleash military power without the acceptance that innocent people are going to die. The way but that you he, weigh that is more yeah. fucking people are going to die if you don't. That's, that's, I think, the key of it, and probably the point to close on, is that it's not a decision, do we, do we bring violence to this situation or not? The, situa- the question is, how, how lopsided will the violence be? Right. Will the violence be uh, one state armed by its allies massacring uh, an under-equipped you know, military and then civilians until there's no one left of the people who inhabited that area? Um, or will those people have the equipment to defend themselves? Like that, that's the question. There's no, there's no, the situation, the only way for the situation to not be violent is for Azerbaijan to not do what they're doing right now. Right. Um, and Hey, if, if some sort of fucking diplomatic pressure works, I will, I will be unbelievably psyched to eat both of our words in this. If the if yeah. fucking Blinken manages to, I don't, I don't, yeah, I have no idea like how, how you actually, have an impact here, but that would be lovely. I just don't think it's likely. Yeah, there's, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's a time for diplomacy, and that time ends mm-hmm. when troops attempt to cross the border, or they start cluster bombing our cities. Like, there, there's a time for diplomacy, and not that you can do two things at once. And, and to be completely clear, I'm not calling for, like, the 101st to fucking land in Yerevan or whatever. Like, I don't want the American military to come here. We'll take care of ourselves, but we need the tools to do so. And yeah, the fact remains is like you can be vehemently against war. I know I am. I fought in them. They fucking suck. I do not want war to happen to anybody. But when they when it comes, talking's over, or at least it, it hits the back burner. Like there's negotiations going on in Ukraine and Russia that we don't hear about. But at the yeah. same time, Ukraine knows they have to continue doing violence in the meantime. Like you can't there, you can't just be like, whoa, guys, let's just hit the brakes and let's like have a fucking peace conference in Belgium or whatever. Like, Suniak is being bombed. Goris is being bombed. Like, Armenians are dying. Like, there's no words that will fix that. What will fix it is fucking artillery systems, HIMARS, GPS guided yeah. weapons, fucking body armor. We don't even have first aid kits. Like, there's, there, yeah. there's things that we need that can happen uh, in addition to political pressure because political pressure is great if we ever have it. But there needs to be something in the meantime. Like um, the, the director of Doctors Without Borders one time said um, something that was incredibly controversial when he said it because he's a doctor and he runs you know, a charity. He said, you can't stop a genocide with doctors. And he meant that nope. you need to give people fucking weapons. Because you know, there's, like, like we already said, and, and then I'll promise I'll stop talking. 
Um, there's two <laughs> ways that this ends. We defend ourselves and we survive, or you sit by and you do nothing, and uh, there's thousands of more graves full of Armenians by the end of this. That's it. I mean, once upon a time, the world said never again, and that shit has had a big fucking asterisk next to it ever since. And people need mm-hmm. to prove themselves. Need, need to fucking prove that words actually mean things. If you want to defend democracies and shit like you do in Ukraine, I have a fucking democracy for you to defend, and we need weapons. <laughs> yeah, I think that's as good a note as any to end on. Joe Kasabian, um, host of Lions Led by Donkeys, uh, author of The Hooligans of Kandahar. You've got other bunch of other books that have come out now. Yeah, um, I have yeah. the Victory of Death series out uh, if you enjoy military sci-fi. Uh, and I have another one coming out in October uh, called The Frontier Corps. Uh, you can pre-order it now. Um, if you look on my uh, Twitter, um, you can uh, find a link to pre-order it. It's uh, free mm-hmm. if you have um, Kindle Unlimited. So, you know, if, if, yeah. if for the ebook. Um, so, yeah. Um, uh, also, if you don't feel like giving me money, that's that's great to donate to the Armenian Red Cross. They need it more than I do. Yeah. Um, all right, everybody. That's the episode. Um, bye. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man, Marie's a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart and putting them back together. And this is another Andrew episode. So, hello, hello. Yes, greetings. Uh, we have, we have, we have Chris. We have James. We have myself, and we have uh, Andrew, obviously, who I'm gonna hand the reins off to. Awesome. So, hello again to another episode of. Me talking about different stuff. Um, and quite fittingly, considering today is the day that Queen Elizabeth has passed into the pits of hell. Um, we, are, we are deeply, as, as a citizen under the Commonwealth, we are deeply saddened uh, by <laughs> the loss of <laughs> Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. All my colleagues have re- reached out to me today, uh, and I am okay, guys. Oh, wow. That is is so funny. Today, we will be discussing a current member of the Commonwealth. um, One of quite a few Twin Island nations in the Caribbean. That being Antigua and Barbuda. And more specifically, Barbuda. Barbuda is an example of African resilience. It's an example of a society in touch with its environment. It's an example of the capability of the commons as an institution. And it's an example of sticking it to the crown, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. Nice. I mean, I'm excited to learn more about that. How, how, how... Yes. Yeah, so I don't think many people know about Barbuda and its history. I doubt most people could place it on a map, but it's, it it represents quite the interesting story. So to begin, I should probably explain what what is a Barbuda. Barbuda is an island located in the Eastern Caribbean, forming part of the sovereign state of Antigua and Barbuda. It's located north of the island of Antigua and is part of the Leeward Islands of the West Indies. It comprises of about 62 square miles. So it is about 62 square miles which is 160 kilometers. And it's one of the flattest islands in the Caribbean. Its soils are very shallow and infertile. It is a very arid island um, with very little rainfall and very frequent droughts. Its scrub wilderness is roamed by deer and pigs and descendants of 
the animals that early European traders and settlers would have imported. It also has a pre-settlement evergreen woodland that consists of white cedar, turpentine, and white wood, alongside columnar cactus and thorny shrubs and grassy glades and soils that have been, and another species that have grown up in soils that have been degraded by the clearance of charcoal burning and grazing and just general human activity. Most Barbudans, I would say, engage in shifting cultivation, but none of them are full-time farmers. The countryside is mostly uninhabited because the law required that all Barbudans lived in or near the island's one village, which is Codrington. And there, according to the 2011 census, there were roughly 1,634 people on the island. Of course, that has changed in recent times, and we'll get into that shortly. Barbuda is yet another example of a distinctive community emerging out of the colonial era that swept through the Caribbean. I've mentioned the Maroons before, um, the different Maroon communities that have existed on the different Caribbean islands and in Guyana and Suriname. But I think Barbuda and their story represents really the diversity of how colonialism manifested um, in the region. Barbuda's people have a sense of identity and attachment to locality that is, I think, very distinctive and very unique among people of the Caribbean. Not to say that the rest of us don't have a sense of identity or an attachment to locality, but their story and their Tradition reaches back over two centuries of near independence and quite significant levels of autonomy, which was unheard of in most of the Caribbean due to the legacy of slavery. Representing a very close-knit and traditional community, Barbudan's approach to using and stewarding the resources reflects that long legacy of isolation of ecological constraint being on such a small island, of familial closeness having such a small population, and of social interdependence. Considering the series of administrators that they had dealt with and how each of those administrators neglected or ignored them. Barbudans, both home and abroad, are still very much attached to their island because they have long held it in common. So, We'll be diving into a brief history of exactly how they reached this point, what institutions they've developed for common ownership and communal land use, and how emigration has played a role in that, and unfortunately, how a combination of Hurricane Irma and the doctrine and the shock doctrine have contributed to their current situation. So for more than 200 years from the late 17th century, Barbuda was leased by the crown to one family, the Codringtons. Hence the name of the village being Codrington. The original leasee was a guy named Christopher Codrington. He was the governor of the Leeward Islands and his heirs lived in England. So they 
pretty much neglected it after he had died. Babuda would have supplemented the lucrative sugar estates that Codrington had in Antigua with timber and ground provisions and fish and livestock and draft animals. Barbuda, being surrounded by coral reefs, often had ships wreck near the island, and so they also salvaged resources from those ships. And so, as late as in the 1850s, the Codringtons were getting £4,000 a year from Barbudan stock and £300 a year from salvaging operations on the island. That's just over £643,000 today, per year. And it just demonstrates, of course, that even though they were more independent than most other enslaved people because the island wasn't as profitable, they were still being exploited. Initially, the island was only worked by a few indentured whites, but then when enslaved people were brought in from Africa, the enslaved population began to rise and they began to establish that sort of culture and community that we see to this day. Because they were neglected because the island was very little inhabited. They housed and they fed themselves through their own efforts and were basically spared of the rigors of the plantation regiment because of how unprofitable the island was, because its soils were so sandy and arid and unfertile. So between 1800 and 1832, being free in many respects, Barbuda's population was able to rise from 300 to 500. And they built a, a cohesive Creole community whose solidarity was able to thwart the efforts of local overseers and absentee proprietors to try to get them to labor on Antiguan estates or to get them to be more quote-unquote productive um, for their overseers. Because they had such a several hundred strong community on that island that had established itself for generations, no overseer, no manager could just pull up in there and just say, try and coerce them into doing what he wanted them to do. This is in stark contrast to a lot of the other Caribbean islands where managers and overseers had a lot more presence and a lot more power to destroy families, to split up communities, to foment divisions. Because the island just... They basically neglected it, and in that neglect, they took advantage of that neglect, of the material conditions that created that neglect to strengthen their community bonds and to strengthen their autonomy. As emancipation came around, Codrington himself even was like, wow, good for them, pretty much, because almost all of them were like, to quote him directly, one united family so attached to Barbuda that force alone or extreme drought can alone take them from that island. In other words, as, an as a displaced indigenous African people, they reforged a connection to the new land that they had inhabited and rooted themselves in that land. One, one particular tradition they have is the burial of one's umbilical cord on the island itself. And so that's been going on for generations where they would a new child is born and the umbilical cord is buried on the island. And so even when Barbudans move abroad, they still have that strong tie to the island itself. So after emancipation rolled around in 1834, Barbudan life didn't change that much. 
the transition from slavery to being free was not as abrupt or as consequential as it was in other parts of the Caribbean. They didn't become landowners. They didn't necessarily get any political power automatically because Barbuda was still being assigned to crown leases, which had certain um, agreements and contracts in place with the crown, that kind of thing. But they were, I mean, they were still being exploited, but things were a bit easier for them to transition compared to other places. An 1835 agreement had secured Barbudan's employment on Codrington Enterprises at specific rates of pay. But after the contract had lapsed, it really reverted to a sort of a relationship of, of coercion. They wouldn't pay them they wouldn't pay them their wages. They would take, quote-unquote, recalcitrant Barbudans and transport them to Antiguan jails or plantations. And they would continue to just siphon off of the island. One of the only exports, really, on the island at the time was cattle. Mostly for Codrington's estates in Antigua. Cattle, sheep, and firewood. And the people themselves were engaged in cultivating provisions, yams, potatoes, corn, and supplying their own, you know, farm industry, their own clothing, their, their necessities. So Barbudans would continue with their different occupations, their hunting and their fishing, their provision, tending, their cutting wood and burning charcoal and salvaging wrecks. Sometimes they would, they would be employed by proprietors or governments, but most times they either disregarded these authorities or acted in open defiance. And so agents of the state would often complain about Barbudans and their disregard for the crown's property and the estate's property. They would often be accused of poaching Codrington's cattle. And so they were, there was one attempt in particular to seize all their guns and send them off of the island. And so when the government did step in and condemned the Barbudans for, you know, taking cattle when they wanted to take cattle. Barbudans basically pulled an Uno reverse card and demanded redress against interference with their livelihoods. They basically were like, I'll quote one petition that was written by Barbudans in 1869. We are deprived of the use of our firearms, whereby most of us live in shooting any large fish, turtle, or wild birds. We are told to take out licenses, yet if we are seen with a gun, not even shooting, we are taken before the magistrate of Antigua, in quotes, and severely punished for, punished for it. Our little gardens are gone to waste, and if such as are still in a little cultivation was to be injured by weather, and we by sickness are not able to have the fences repaired directly, it is taken and burned, saying our intention is only to catch the wild beasts of Mr. Codrington's. Eventually... I guess the Codringtons got tired of having to not profit as well as they could have, of having to deal with these independent people. They relinquished on their lease in 1870. They took all their horses and cattle off the island, leaving only the deer and sheep because they can't really round up deer and sheep as effectively at, the, at that point. And they basically, they left. Um... And I always find it interesting when Europeans bring like a bunch of European animals wherever they go. It's like, let me just go and set up an estate here in the middle of nowhere and introduce a bunch of deer and sheep and rabbits and stuff. I mean, I think it happened in Australia as well. 
they just let a bunch of rabbits just go loose just for hunting. It's like, oh, let me like get a hobby that's not <laughs> shooting animals. But anyway. So because Bobbyuda was seen as unprofitable, each leasee that you know got their lease from the crown gutted its resources as much as they could and neglected its inhabitants. William and Robert Dugal of William and Robert Dugal's Bobbyuda Island Company never invested the annual 1.5 or 1,500 pounds required by their lease. Only 700 pounds rather than their promised 6,000 worth of stock were introduced with barely, with barely a score of Bobbyudans employed as cruisers. And even though they allegedly attempted to plant um, certain coffee, cola, cocoa, and other fruits, they neglected that too. And eventually in 1898, a derelict Barbuda was forfeited to the crown for a non-payment of rent. When a government official visited the island, he found the deer were almost exterminated, the satin wood and logwood were depleted, the cattle were famished, the fences were in disrepair, they had four men to round up about eight, 100 horses, 80 cattle, and, and a bunch of cows. And the two paddocks that existed on the island had long since become filthy and variously overgrown, not only with bush, but dense thickets. Dr. Dugall's gunners also apparently had a really bad sense of aim because a lot of the fences were just riddled with bullets. And so because the island and the people were starved and degraded by the Dugalls, um, the colonial office had, you know, revoked their lease and basically excused the few villagers who had taken some of the cattle um, for themselves. Babirans had also protested the fact that whenever these leases would pull up on their island, they would always be taking their stock, closing their provision grounds, threatening to evict them, basically doing everything they could to be hostile towards people on the island. And so only their own traditional hunting and farming and, and stuff enabled Barbudans to survive. Of course, the government being the government didn't really care about the people that much. So even though the leaseholders were gone, they didn't really get much out of it. The people, that is. So then after the termination of the lease, the colonial government... Uh, the Leeward Islands colonial government in Antigua basically took over the island and they established a government stock farm in 1901, some cotton plots in 1903. Um, they gave some grants to pay for fencing and cutting wood and cotton experiments and cattle purchases and mule breeding. And the Barbudans took the government grazing lands for their own purposes and basically enclosed a portion of that land and left it for the government stock and left the rest of the pasture, the richest parts of the pasture, for their own horses and cattle and donkeys. So while the government had to deal with like this small portion of land with like some very weak, insufficient meadow, the rest of the community was able to flourish with a nice rich pasture for their cattle. And still, despite that, the stock farm, the government stock farm still flourished with 161 horses, 108 cattle, and five mules by 1905. And then the cotton 
surprisingly also became profitable on the island. Um, a, crop, a crop that really didn't flourish there at all during slavery was now starting to pick up in the beginning of the early 20th century. They began shipping cotton out and employing a bunch of Barbudans and now Barbuda was being seen as a super profitable place. However, because of that cotton boom, Barbudans were able to buy passage overseas, they were able to raise their standard of living, and it ended up causing a labor shortage that led to conflict. After a shipwreck off the island in 1915, the island manager went to check out what was going on with the salvaging, and he caught a bunch of Barbudans salvaging but salvaging for their own profit instead of his profits. And so in, in, retali- in retaliation for him trying to stop them from salvaging for themselves, the Barbudans burnt his boat and his wagon. And so in retaliation for that, the governor of Antigua started to impose these previously unenforced rents on cultivated plots. So like he wanted to charge like five shillings per acre per year. And he also doubled animal head taxes. And so by introducing these taxes, introducing these rents, the government was basically trying to get, not just to punish the people for, you know, daring to be free, but also trying to force them to work on their cotton plantation. Of course, Barbudans, having lived so freely for so long, didn't want to work on these cotton plantations especially not after slavery. Um, And so the people petitioned the crown against this kind of semi-indentured servitude that the governor was trying to introduce. And it seems that Mother Nature was on their side because they won their case due to drought. All the crops were basically ruined by drought, cutting on cotton profits, um, cutting on cattle profits, cutting on crop, on, on corn profits. And all this happened in 1916. And then in 1922, Barbuda was hit by a hurricane more severe than they'd ever seen before. And so that brief period where Barbuda was seen as striking gold for the government, came to an end. And Barbudans continued to cling on to their customary modes of subsistence, of self-reliance, of survival, of their plots and their livestock and their fishing grounds, of continuing to be their own masters because 250 years of experience had taught them how unreliable and exploitative all these other alternatives that bosses, non-natives, that government was trying to introduce were to them. And they learned that only ownership in common would guarantee their access and guarantee the protection of their island from environmental exploitation. And so that's where we get to the interesting part. Because they'd already long thought of themselves as owners of the island, as possessing the island for themselves, even though in, on paper it wasn't the case. Even though on paper 
they were being handled between the crown and the different leaseholders that the crown would introduce. Barbuda, two Barbudans, being so small, being so homogenous, having such meager soils, having such strong and tight connections and bonds, they saw it as all of theirs collectively. It wasn't like, and when I say strong connections, family bonds, I don't mean it in the sense that uh, some of the other in lands in the Caribbean were sort of parceled out. Because in the Caribbean, there are lands that are held by certain families and it passes down the family and it's going on for generations. But it wasn't this idea that oh, these particular families owned the land. It was that all of them together owned the land. Serious, real, communal land ownership. They'd use the land for generations to raise ground provisions, to hunt deer and wild pigs, to keep goats and sheep, to keep cattle, to cut firewood, to fish, and so on. They had no documents that said that they had these collective rights on the island, and yet they all insisted with one voice that Barbuda was theirs alone. No outsiders could tell them otherwise. And... Furthermore, they had proven again and again and again that outside proprietors were powerless in the face of their attempts to run the island for themselves because they would continue to graze their cattle wherever they wanted to graze their cattle. They would continue to fish wherever they wanted to fish, salvage whatever they wanted to salvage, cultivate wherever they wanted to cultivate. Who's going to stop them? <laughs> you know? Clearly nobody. They couldn't even get, outsiders couldn't even get like a rent out of Barbudans. So by 1920, Barbudans had gotten legal entitlement to roughly half of the island. And by 1983, they controlled virtually all of its resources, basically de facto. Unfortunately, against their will, honestly, Antigua and Barbuda were joined together by colonial administrators. And so Antigua and Barbuda is the country that exists today. But one of the primary concerns of Barbudans were that they were able, were that they be able to maintain sole ownership, sole control, sole communal control over the lands of Barbuda. Land ownership has been an issue that Barbudans have had with Antigua for a very, very long time now, for decades now. And um, really all Barbudans want is to maintain their common ownership for themselves alone. And so they have maintained that through the Barbudan Council, defending the land and declaring that no land in Barbuda can be sold or developed without the permission of the Barbudan Council. And so now to explain basically how common land use works in Barbuda, there are two distinctive and useful modes of land use. Shifting cultivation for provision grounds and open range pasturage for livestock. Because the soil is so weak 
shifting cultivation is a necessity. And so after one or two years of planting, exhaust the soil, they move their fencing, they move their grounds of between half an acre to two or three acres and plant their sweet potatoes, yams, maize, beans, pigeon peas, squash, peanuts, etc. elsewhere. So the old land could, you know, regenerate. But this constant cultivation is something that occurs that grants really no permanent rights to any one individual. You do have use rights, it's the principle of usufruct, over the area you're cultivating, but you don't have permanent ownership over that piece of land that you're cultivating. And they have that system in place because they recognize living on the island for all these generations, that Barbuda's ecology is extremely fragile, extremely limited. Um, its resources are limited. And so they have to safeguard their, um, their sustenance for generations to come. Yeah, it's fascinating, actually. It's really, I didn't know anything about that. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Similarly, with um, with the slash and burn cultivation, they also had the management of open range livestock being very much unrestricted. Um, there are actually feral cattle that exist on the island, in addition to the more tamed and penned animals. Um, and so, how they basically they allow all their animals to you know mix and mingle of different families or different individuals would have their specific cattle or horses or sheep or whatever earmarked or branded. But for the most part, they, they've maintained this sort of open range husbandry because it helps to sustain their unity. It helps to maintain their and strengthen their social bonds and their community solidarity to basically ensure that everyone is taken care of in a place that is so scant of resources. And lastly, through one of the ways that they maintain the balance of the island is through, is through emigration. The population has basically stayed at that level because they've stayed within the limits of the resources they have on the island. And so young Barbudans have had to leave um, the island um, while still maintaining their communal use rights to the land. And then eventually they would make remittances of money or resources and periodic returns that would help to introduce, you know, healthcare resources and housing resources and education resources to the island. So it's not that they're like completely isolated from the outside world living in this sort of bubble they do still have that exchange going on. Most of the immigrants live in three primary communities. St. John's Antigua, of course, seeing as it's their neighbor. Um, a lot of them are in New York City. I mean, a lot of Caribbean people in general are in New York City, but Barbudans are in New York City. And a lot of them also live in Britain, in Leicester, as part of the West Indian exodus that took place all the way back in the late 1950s. Yeah. So to sort of wrap things up here, 
um, their communal ties and their solidarity have allowed them to cope with a harsh environment and to successfully navigate a succession of misinformed, aloof, sometimes actively hostile and mostly incompetent proprietors, managers, and administrators. Being so unified and holding themselves in solidarity, they have managed to maintain their traditional resource ownership, their communal land tenure, and their fragile ecology. Completely and totally um, rejecting the assertions that the economist Garrett Hardin made about the tragedy of the commons. It has not been a tragedy for Barbudans. It has been a triumph. Until recently. Unfortunately, in September 2017, Hurricane Irma damaged and destroyed up to 95% of the island's buildings and infrastructure. And as a result, all of the island's inhabitants had to evacuate Antigua, leaving Barbuda empty for the first time in hundreds of years. Wow. I mean, two years later, by February 2019, most of the residents have returned to the island. However, the Prime Minister of Antigua, Gaston Alfonso Brown, he's been leader since 2014, um, has been making moves essentially to privatize Barbuda. His background before entering politics was being a banker and a businessman. And he seems to be employing the shock doctrine tactic of using environmental catastrophe and social displacement to accelerate capitalism, essentially. After, you know, Hurricane Emma swept through um, and most residents became homeless, communication systems came to, went, went down, um, Antigua and Barbuda got relief, £120,000 of relief for Barbuda. Um, That's not very much. Not very much at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it would take over $100 million to rebuild the homes and the infrastructure in Barbuda. Um all the critical infrastructure that existed, the food supply, the medicine, the shelter, electricity, water, communications, waste management. And as one person said, um, the director of Antigua and Barbuda's National Office of D- Disaster Services, Philmer Mullen, he said, in my 25 years of disaster management, I've never seen something like this. It is optimistic to think anything like this could be rebuilt in six months. They have to rebuild entirely all of their public utilities. Um, and so essentially what Prime Minister Gaston Alfonso Brown is trying to do is revoke communal land ownership, allow the residents to buy some land and use the rest to basically introduce um, resorts and hotels and other Mm -hmm. tourist uh, attractions to help fund the um, rebuilding efforts. But of course, we know where that money is actually going to go. And 
that's as far as I know about the situation. Um, unfortunately, I don't have any connections in Antigua and Barbuda yet. Um, but unfortunately, that is what has been going on. Another example, basically, of disaster capitalism, trying to seize and accumulate through violence and through exploitation, as usual. I hope that, you know, we've seen and been inspired by Barbuda's efforts, and I hope that um, Barbudans are able to continue to prove themselves resilient in the face of this disaster. That's fascinating. Um, do you know, like, I'm interested in these, like, diasporic communities. Like you said, there's one in Leicester and stuff. Um, it, it, like, do they still have, like, a very strong community coherence, like, when they when they go elsewhere? Um, to, like, did, did, like, you said they tend to gather in, like, certain spots. I, I'd be interested in, like, how those folks, I guess, dealt with a very different life in, like, New York or Leicester or, or wherever. Right, well... Um... Like other Caribbean people um, who have emigrated, we do tend to con- concentrate in certain um, places where we, where we already have family connections. Um, I think most Caribbean people have at least a relative living abroad. Yeah. Um, an uncle, a great uncle, a second cousin, a cousin, whatever. Um, and so it sort of builds from there. And so you try and basically create like a piece of home and sort of settle and concentrate in those areas and live in those areas and support each other in those areas. Yeah. And that I would say helps with the adjustment. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you can find me on youtube.com slash andrewism on patreon.com slash St. Drew and on twitter.com slash underscore St. Drew. If you are, uh, Barbudan, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. I would love to learn more about the situation going on and wish you all, all the best. Solidarity forever. Peace. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. 
Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and the last star on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano. Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who's dying today? It's the queen. It's the queen. Uh, she, well, correction. She's not dying. She's she's that dead. That lady's dead. That lady's dead. Yeah. Uh, very sad, obviously. Um, yeah. Very, very sad. Grieving podcast today. Uh, brought to mm-hmm. you by It Could Happen Here. It's all of us. It's, it's me. It's Gare. It's Chris. It's Robert. And it's the ghost of the queen. We're talking about the queen. She's dead. What's up with that? Yeah, she's real dead. Um. I, I haven't seen, you know what I haven't seen that I'm disappointed of is a, a, a new version of the Monty Python dead parrot sketch involving her corpse and its in its fancy casket. Um, but <laughs> there's still time. There's we still can fix, time. We can change that. Now, yeah, uh, my question is, James, is that legal in the UK now? <laughs> Absolutely not. No, well, no we should, you will we get to... so arrested. <laughs> yeah, not even arrested. This is the worst part. People have just, like, I don't understand what the fuck is wrong with people, but they have become volunteer cops to, like, defend a guy who's been credibly accused of pedophilia. And I am disappointed in us. Uh, like, yeah. do not be policing your fellow people for exercising some of the very few rights that the Conservative, well, the Conservative Party has taken away from them, actually. But, uh, yeah, you've only let yourself down. I'm disappointed. Yeah, they 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 uh really really hating anyone who is not thrilled about the monarchy. They're, yeah, they're uh, arresting people for having not my king signs. Uh, I see that Jedward is taking it to the fascist state, which is great to see. But so we're going to be talking about the queen uh, or mm-hmm. <laughs> former former queen. Um, 
I, I do want to do want to note that uh, you know the day the Queen died, a, a, a big wave of condolences came in, including from Domino's Pizza UK. Wow, um, Her, which which I, if you don't understand, the Queen had a very deep relationship with Domino's, so this this does mean a lot. Um, they were they were they were lovers. Um, among those who posted their condolences was uh, Hamilton West End. Uh, nice. <laughs> The 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 Brit the Britain uh, RMT, which is like the the, the British Railway Union, yeah. stopped their strike, which yep. I think is the most pissant coward thing I've yeah. ever seen yeah. a union do. Uh, British cycling suggested that people not go out for a bike ride during the time of the Queen's so funeral. Funny. Are, are, yeah, you fucking, the, are you fucking serious? Yeah. My God. They're, yeah, they're, they're literally she closing was 96. Deal with they're it. They're closing yeah. food banks. I, I, I think like, the funniest yeah, one yeah. was Les Miserables posted, everyone oh. at Les Miserables <laughs> is deeply saddened by the passing of Her Majesty <laughs> the Queen and we offer our sincere condolences to the royal family. We join together with the people of the United Kingdom and all yes. around the world in mourning her loss, which yes. they then, which they then deleted an hour later. If there's yeah, one thing that Miserab is about, it's about people all over the world mourning the loss of monarchy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the main thing about it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. so, so yeah, most of on Twitter was definitely was definitely split between these companies posting how <laughs> they're so sad, but also a lot of people uh, pretty pretty thrilled that the Queen died because it's kind of funny. Because we, I, we were all shocked by the 95, 96 96. year old woman yeah, yeah. Um, who old. died. She, of natural she was causes. so young. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. Yeah, really? look, look, it's amazing. She was she was at an age that if you reversed her age and told me yeah. she had died, I still wouldn't have been surprised. Like she was at an age where like even if you flip the numbers, she's still old. Yes, she's still <laughs> like, old. Yeah. Uh, it is great to see the Telegraph today running a headline, Five Mile Queue to View Elizabeth II's Coffin Will See Horrible Stories of Suffering. Uh, <laughs> what? This is a country where what people will mean? not be able to heat their homes this winter. It's a country it's so we've seen good. an explosion in food insecurity, and this yeah. is what we're doing. Yeah. It's like like the the, the, the the British like okay, so the crown did not call directly for a blood sacrifice. The British people are just bound and determined to have people die. Like they, they are like they're like they're lining up in the streets to sacrifice themselves for the dead. It's wild. It is a, it's I, a I mean, magical thing. Don't do us all that way. There's some people showing up with not my king signs and getting yeah. Assaulted by mobs of, of and, and for yeah, the like record, actual, those like, people like not just police, awesome. but like regular ass people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, most people are not that concerned. Most people are not like it's just like the turfs in Britain. There are like a, a small minority of people who do nothing but tweet and write for the Guardian who misrepresent the opinions of most British people who are not that concerned. But like a lot of these British people do show up in person and like shut down like. Yes, it's certainly yeah, it is not it is not the case that like there isn't widespread support for this kind of shit. It's just that it's it's not uniform. Yeah, and that's the people who do it. speak the people who do speak up also tend to get arrested. Which, so, which is like it's it's sort of amazing. It's like okay, Britain got industrial capitalism before like any other country on earth, right? The bourgeoisie has one job. One job. Their one job is to destroy feudalism and they could even, the British couldn't do it. <laughs> they had they had the largest head start of any country on earth and they couldn't do it. It's, it's incredible. It's miraculous. They were co-opted into these feudal elites through things like the Great Reform Act, which which used property as a as a proxy for land or capital as a proxy for land. And it's worked remarkably well. And now we just do false consciousness shit like this. 
Like, how good is your false consciousness game when people who can't heat their homes are sleeping on the street to say goodbye to a, presumably a billionaire who never cared about them? Like, yeah, it's, it's like miraculous. Like even, yeah, like, even, who, even who absolutely who was not equipped emotionally to have ever cared about them, it's whose the like person... soul would never have allowed her to care about them. Yeah, yes. I mean, let's let's like. You know, as as lots of people were romanticizing the the monarchy and the queen and doing their like performative mornings, uh, obviously there was a wave of other people being like, "Hey, you know, the royal family is kind of kind of fucked up. Uh, yeah. You know, they've stolen billions of dollars in jewels from countries like India and and across S- South Africa. Um, they're continuing to benefit from uh, Britain's history of colonialism." Uh, the, uh, earlier earlier this year, during the during the during the the Queen's Jubilee celebration, an old Kenyan revolutionary fighter used the uh, used the the occasion to call for an explanation from the Queen for why she hasn't been compensated after being tortured with axes by British yeah. troops. Mm-hmm. People um, should look at the way Britain treated the Mau Mau. Oh my we're, god! We're going to be talking. Yeah, we have, we I have be, stuff on this. Yeah, I have yeah. stuff on this okay, later for this okay, episode. Actually, okay. we're going to be talking let's, about that. Let's go. Um, yeah. A 2017 estimate found that the royal family is estimated to be worth 88 billion dollars. Um, yeah, and so, a lot of that's obviously not in straight up cash, which is one yes. of the ways like people yeah, are talking yes. about. Oh, Charles inherited half a billion. No, it, Charles inherited of tens of billions though, of dollars. Yes, like they, they own a lot yes. of land. Yes, they own a huge amount of land. Yep. Um, Charles has his own real estate empire that he yep. cr- like created while he was waiting for his mom to fucking croak. Um, and they also have like a fortune and un- a really actually uncountable. Th- th- like you have to think about their wealth, like the Vatican, like yeah. there's no actual way, like it's functionally yeah. limitless money because so much of what they own is like priceless antiquities, many of which were stolen from other people. Yeah. And it's hard to, to put a tangible number on their sort of their value and their sort of whatever you want to call it, celebrity status. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. What is that fucking diamond in the goddamn crown worth? Right. Like, there's no yeah. real way to appraise that. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and and I want to point this out. Like, if they tried to sell the diamond, almost certainly what would happen is like the British people would give her three billion dollars and they give her <laughs> yeah, the diamond yeah. back. Yeah. They'd yeah, crowdfund it. Yeah. They'd stop doing the subsidies for heating that they've just started doing and buy the diamond back. Let's that talk about exactly- that. Exactly. Let, 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 let's talk about the heating thing briefly, because I think uh, an anchor on BBC was discussing how <laughs> yeah. news of the Queen's passing basically interrupted all other news in the UK, um, including uh, statements being given on the 80% price increase in energy bills and the rising yeah. cost of living, um, My stating f- <laughs> that that those topics, the, the topics of cost of living and the, the rising energy bills was, quote, insignificant now due to the gravity of this situation um we can we can insert this clip here i have i have it saved for daniel because it just it's wild doctors in scotland were concerned about the queen's health coming um as liz trust was making a, a rather important statement concerning um the future of energy bills um that of course insignificant now given the gravity of the situation we seem to be experiencing with her majesty an old lady died. She was not a very nice old lady. I've known old ladies who were nice that died, and I was sad. I've known old ladies yeah. who were not, not, not nice that died, and I didn't really care. In any case, like it's it's not it's not a big deal because yeah. old people like that's what human beings do when they reach ninety six is they yeah, die I, a lot of the time, and it's it's okay. 
Like yeah. it's okay. Yeah. Queen outside Queen, of everything about her, it's fine. Queen yeah. Elizabeth was the longest reigning monarch in the history of Britain. Yeah, probably close to the longest in like maybe Ramsey's yeah. the fucking second is up there. Like sixty nine years, you don't run into a lot of competition in terms of length of Seven, reign. Seventy yeah. years, seventy yeah, years. 70. Did she she ascended the throne in nineteen fifty two. Yeah, uh, um, it's worth noting that a lot of old ladies are going to die in Britain this winter because of this, yeah. this, this well, energy and, pricing, and, and no one will care. And it's also worth noting that the Queen tried to use a bunch of state poverty money that was earmarked for schools, hospitals, and low-income families to pay Buckingham Palace's mm-hmm. heating bill. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it's that's wild. It's great. Well, you wouldn't want an old woman like that to be out of out in the rain. Ah, in the cold. that's where you're wrong. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> because I believe the Crown Estates, and I'll have to check this real quickly, I believe the Crown Estates did evict people during the COVID-19 pandemic, talking of old folks being kicked out into the rain. Woo. So, wow. and for uh, for around two weeks after the Queen's death, basically all of Britain kind of grinds to a halt. Um, which, 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 I mean, honestly, uh, uh, one of the base parts about this is that this does potentially cost the UK economy billions of dollars because they just shut down for two weeks. <laughs> um, so, it is, this is like the equivalent of the boat getting stuck in the canal, just the Queen <laughs> dying. <laughs> I, I do want to. I do want to make a quick note for everybody. The longest reigning verifiable monarch, uh, according to this Wikipedia page that I just skimmed, is Sobhuza II of Swaziland, which was a British protectorate until 1968. Uh, he reigned from 1899 to August of 1982. Whoa! <laughs> 82 wow. years. So, My you know what, Elizabeth? Not that impressive. I am a Sobhuza II stan now. <laughs> Absolute like, Chad uh, shit. The fact that he just snuffed it before he got to see apartheid end. Very yeah, sad. That is yeah, that wild. is a bummer. Um, yeah. 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 So, wow. Yeah, I'm just uh, yeah, just looking at some of the, the evictions the Crown Estates have done over the years. You can look mm-hmm. those out. It's pretty heartbreaking shit. Um, well, uh, yeah. luck, luckily, uh, the Queen actually did not die in Buckingham Palace. She died in a castle in 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 Scotland. That's great because um, Buckingham Palace is a hideous monument of trash. Like, it's fucking the ugly. castle she died in looks pretty cool. But I, yeah, I no, know, dude, a lot it's, of it's the one Balmoral thing that is, yeah, is nice. one thing you're supposed to get with a monarchy is like really rad looking castles. It is like neat. The castles are cool, except for Buckingham Palace, which looks yeah, like fucking tenements. Garbage. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, but, but, but Buckingham Palace is a building that dares you to go steal back all of the wealth that they stole from you to build it. Yeah. <laughs> so the 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 plan for if the Queen died in this Scottish castle was called Operation Unicorn, which yep. is wild. No, no one could guess. What is the unicorn? A 96-year-old woman dying is not a unicorn situation. Operation Squirrel or something. How is this giving a couple their third? I don't get it. I, I know. Um, so the, 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 the plan for this type of thing is, so the, the queen died on last Thursday afternoon. It was announced the Friday following Friday morning after the queen dies, uh, they call operation unicorn. They then call, uh, they send like emergency alerts to all the British leaders. Um, you know, the, 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 the new prime minister who is incredibly funny. Um, and you know, all of, all these people are <laughs> notified, uh, and then press press gets notified uh, that next morning as 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 they did so, so staff members in the castles and palaces all got sent home um it's, 
<laughs> all parliamentary <laughs> business gets postponed. Uh, every, everything everything sh- shuts down, uh, which means all of the stuff they were working on on energy bills gets shut down. Like they were mm-hmm. working on trying to figure out what the fuck they're going to do for this 80% cost increase. All that gets shut down until late September. Um, so that's that's cool. Um, but no, this is actually kind of a unique thing because because of how long Elizabeth reigned. Yeah. The last death of a monarch was in the fifties, so it's it's been a while since this has happened. So everyone's kind of rusty, like no, like they, we aren't as prepared for this. Yeah. If, if if it's you, like, okay, like, my my hope is that we get a couple of uh, we get a, people get a lot of experience with dead British monarchs in the next oh, decade. I hope I'm so. Hoping, I'm hoping Char- we get a bunch because King Charles the Third. I don't think will be around for too long. Yeah, mm. I've seen that well, man's hands, and it's. I mean, here's the thing, right? Every every time a monarch dies, it's kind of it's like a top down rolling general strike. So if we get mm-hmm. enough of them in a row, we can start doing serious damage to yeah. British hey, capital. Hey, hey. By yeah, the but- way, quick quick note about the Chad Sabuza the Second of Swaziland. <laughs> okay. um, died died with a thousand grandchildren. <laughs> oh my oh! God! Jesus Christ! Oh, Jesus! <laughs> Wow, man! And always uh, pictured shirtless. Elizabeth has uh, ca- cannot compete. Yeah, no, I'm fine with that not being the case. Actually, I don't want to see any competition yeah. there. Uh, yeah, uh, and he probably wasn't racist to any of their partners. Which is no, kind of actually, we can say about the royal family. Is he, it? He, here's a neat thing. He and he he took all control of all non or of all Swazi land and mineral rights from non Swazi interests that had gained control during colonialism and indigenized all of that, which is dope. So there you go. Yeah, Sabuza the motherfucking second. Yeah, that's what well, we call a, a god king. Uh, I have to go and get injected with a small dose of a disease. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's, Cut everything but injected in that, Chris. Hey, Daniel's back. <laughs> so let's take an ad break, um, mm-hmm. and we'll be back to learn more about the queen. Yeah, you know what else will give you a small dose of a disease? That's right. That's right. Oh, yes, yeah. these products and services. Yeah, I was going to say the Queen of England, but yeah, the Queen. Yeah, it's <laughs> also true, isn't it? Yeah. And we're back. So yeah, been a while since um, um, uh, since a monarch died. Last time this happened in the fifties, uh, mourners uh, wore black armbands to show respect for King George. <laughs> the, the, the <laughs> That's the I, one who I, was I, like a big I, fan of Nazis, right? That, I don't. I don't think we're gonna see. So I, I don't think that tradition's gonna continue. I doubt we're gonna mm-hmm. see a wave of black armbands. No. Hey, if, if anyone was gonna do it, it would probably be the Anglo's. Yeah, I I suppose so. Um, yeah, it's uh oh yeah, it was Edward Edward the Eighth who abdicated, um and and then was replaced by the guy who you were talking about. Okay, that's the guy so, who liked Nazis, Edward the Eighth. So all all all, fl- all all the UK flags are gonna be flown at at half mast until the day of the funeral. And then mm-hmm. the day of the funeral is going to be a bank holiday as well. So that's pretty exciting. Um, that's great. I hope that the poor get to eat sweet meats or something provided no, by the crown. No, no, no. no. Again, they're ju- they're just closing down <laughs> all, almost all, all the business, food, almost all, the food all businesses, See, almost all businesses in the UK will close. The stock exchange is going to close. Um, like on on fo- following President uh, Princess Diana's death in the late nineties. Uh, a Britain business owners in Britain quote felt that they were quote uh, forced to close their shops or cancel sporting sporting events the day of the funeral lest they feel the rage of the tear stained hordes outside unquote 
Yeah, um, that's an incredible. That is an incredibly funny way to talk about monarchists, though. Like, thank, yeah. thank, thank you, The Guardian, for that amazing quote. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I mean, and at least with Diana, it was actually sad. Like, she was a nice person who was badly treated in her life by the royal family and died tragically and young, as opposed to somebody who got everything they want from the day they were born and died at 96. So then, currently, they are assembling the, quote, Ascension Council uh, to formally declare uh, Prince Charles uh, the king, which he's, he's, he's already known as King Charles. But, yeah. you know, th- there's the whole separate formal process. Yeah, because um, he could pick another name still. He says he's not. He says he's oh, he, he's he's confirmed that good because yes. Char- Kings Kings Charles have a good history in the UK. Yeah, they yeah, don't often all get executed. <laughs> So the the council will make the proclamation of ascension to be uh, to be read on proclamation day will be which will be soon after uh, the death, um, and that'll be oh, somewhere God. somewhere in uh, in, uh, in London. Um, How do they still have all this shit? Like there's so many weird rituals that they still do. Um, both houses of parliament are suspended are suspended until after the official state funeral. Um, and both and and all politicians have to swear new allegiance to the to the newly ascended monarch. This is really like genuinely the world's most pathetic ruling class. Like, oh my god, Jesus it's, Christ! It's, it's pretty funny. You are the bourgeoisie. You have one job. Well, but also <sighs> like back in the day before we had monarchs and capitalism. Whenever, you know, you had a new coronation, whenever there was something big that happened with the monarchy, the thing they would do is make sure everybody had a shitload of food and nice stuff. The, the, the king would give it away. It's all over the world. Cultures would do this. Yeah, even it's the czar you do. did this. Yeah, it's what you do when you come to power because they were at least that scared of the people where it's like, all right, I got to like do something to ring in this rain good so they don't start to wonder why do we have a king now? So I'm going to give them a bunch of fucking food and then they'll be like, oh, the king, he's the guy who gives us food every now and then. That's dope. It's amazing now that in the UK, it's just like, all right, we've got a new monarch and the old one died. So you guys, a lot of you don't get to eat for a while. (laughs) So King Charlie, uh, 73, is the oldest person in British history to become king. Uh, which is, I think, a great sign. <laughs> Very unsobuza the second of him. <laughs> and then we're also getting a new queen, technically, uh, uh, the Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall. Which again, all this sounds made up. Um, <laughs> is is now uh, is is now the queen consort. Um, so that's exciting. It's, that's thrilling. I'm I'm th- I'm thrilled for Queen Camilla. I, I'm, it is. The Duchess of Cornwall? Are you Cornwall, kidding me? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, so, yeah, the- and Queen Elizabeth Co- Queen Elizabeth's coffin is uh, is being prepared to to lie in state, meaning it'll be presented for the public to view, so they can cry on the coffin, which is pretty cool. Oh, or cry near the coffin. They don't want the pores to get too close. Oh god. <laughs> uh, Wait. Oh, so meanwhile, gonna- so Booza the second turned Swaziland into a major asbestos exporter, which Queen Elizabeth <laughs> also never did. So. Wait, so, so when, 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 when the queen dies, do they like from, like, do they like preserve her in formaldehyde or whatever? Or do they let yeah, her they've got oh, some yeah. fancy they, embalming they are, shit. They have some fancy ass shit. They were probably the, the, embalming her while she was alive. <laughs> yeah. Just as her limbs stopped working, <laughs> squirting some in. The queen's body will lie in state until the day of the funeral. 
which will then become a, a public holiday. There's at least a 10-day mourning period starting the day after her death. Um, and then she'll Wait, be transported it- to, Winme- to Westminster Abbey by gun carriage for the state funeral. And then after the funeral, she'll be, she'll be buried in the King George VI Memorial Chapel. Uh, and uh, I believe her... <laughs> The body of her late husband, Prince Philip, who died last year, will be moved from the vault that he's currently at to beneath the chapel to join her. So that's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Nothing to say about that other than it's funny that they've just got that dude in a fucking freezer. Um, it's really funny. And uh, the yeah. new coronation will cost billions of pounds. Oh, good. That's a good thing because England's like doing great right now. They've got plenty of money for all the necessities. You know, uh, everything's been the, going you know, well. Cost of living, yeah. great. Cost of living's really down. So it's it's a good idea to spend billions of dollars making a little death cult about this elderly woman. That's good. The, just like the last like big royal wedding cost between one point two billion and six billion pounds, which is quite yeah. quite the quite the spectrum there. One one point two to six billion. That's like, huh. I, w- um, I mean, I, I feel like I, but at, at that point, all money's fake. Like the cost no of the coronation is expected to be similar, billion. if not a little bit higher. So, Great. yeah, you oh, gotta boy. you gotta spend a lot of money on a coronation for fucking Charles, uh, so you know, that you can because that's what real countries do in 2022. Speak- that's very real country shit. Speaking of money, uh, new currency is already being printed, and in fact, oh, that'll uh, call, that'll be cheap though. And in fact, uh, uh, portraits of Charles have already been made on currency. There's like a reserve of money depicting the next king. It's oh like that's being stored to like move it in for when for when the queen died. It's like Think they already had funny. lots of this money saved. Just Think like of how funny it would have been if like six months before this happened, his 72 year old ass had a heart attack. <laughs> have to like burn all that money. Yeah, they got to burn all the Charles bucks. He's not going to be around long. I will say uh, think that's funny. Christ that Britain no longer has the world's reserve currency. Yeah. Like, can you imagine? No, we we took oh. look I, I on on this network on our various shows. We we spend a lot of time digging into ugly aspects of American history and American culture. But let's all celebrate one thing that I'm legitimately proud of, which is that a long time ago people here were like, that seems stupid to let those the, that family run everything. Why are we why are we doing that? Let's get those fuckers out of here. Um, at least we did that. Although now a bunch of Americans are being fucking bootlickers too. And in Oregon yeah, and a but, bunch but of like, other states, we're putting in the flags at half staff, which like, do you know, not but, know why this country exists? Yeah. This is but the still, one still. based thing we did. Yeah. Like, like even the U S which like, like probably has the most murderous bourgeoisie in human history. At least we did our bourgeois revolution. Damn it. Like at least we destroyed feudalism. So now <sighs> we're going to move on to the next segment of the show entitled An Incomplete List of the Politicians, Warmongers, Generals, and Otherwise Bastards Who Queen Elizabeth II Bestowed uh, Awards. So I have, I have quite the collection of people here. Um, oh, let's, let's start with uh, Palestine. So Shimon Peres uh, served as both Shimon. president and prime minister of, of, of Israel. He got a Nobel Peace Prize in like the 90s for that an interim deserved. peace deal yeah. that like failed in, in the long run to turn into an yeah, actual treaty. He also got assassinated, treaty. I think. Um, Pretty sure he got assassinated. No, I don't think. I don't, no, I don't, no, I don't, no, no, I don't no, no, no. That was, uh, that was Rabin. I think Rabin yeah, was the no, one. Getting, and sorry, Rabin was the one who you could argue might have deserved an award. So, yeah. 
he's he's but Perez is kind of known as more of like a a peaceable leader. He's like uh, in compared to some of his like colleagues. Um, yeah. you know, specifically with like the various ethnic cleansings that they do in Palestine, Perez is kind of seen as like the the good guy. Um, and then in the mid '90s, he was facing a major right wing backlash um, in his home over over the peace deal with the Palestinians, um, and in the middle of an election campaign, which he was kind of losing. So during this time, he unleashed uh, Operation Grapes of Wrath. Which caused four hundred thousand uh, Lebanese to flee their homes, with almost eight hundred of them fleeing into a United Nations base in uh, uh, Kwana, I believe it's called, uh, in, uh, in, in south in South Lebanon. And he didn't really stop there. Uh, in in order to kind of appease the right, and Al Jazeera c- calls it uh, in, in in an attempt to shore up his military c- credentials before a general election, which he then lost to Benjamin Netanyahu. He ordered the army to strike this UN uh, shelter, killing 102 civilians, mostly women and children. Uh, at the time of the attack, Perez said that, in my opinion, everything was done according to clear logic and in a responsible way. I am at peace. Um, Perez said that the compound had been hit due to an incorrect targeting based on erroneous data, but the United Nations investigations found it unlikely that the shelling uh, was unintentional. Uh, because they were severing the area heavily beforehand, so he did. He did. The, he did this massacre, killed like a hundred, a hundred people to boost his polls for the right wingers in this election. <sighs> um, November two thousand eight, Queen Elizabeth awarded him with an honorary knighthood. Uh, he was knighted in the Grand Cross of the Order of Saint Michael and Saint George. And during his knighthood, like the, that day, um, Perez spoke to the Queen about the escalating Israeli-Palestine conflict, saying that, quote, the British learned from the Bible, and we learned from the British democracy. Uh, earlier that year, IDF launched Operation Hot Winter, a military campaign targeting the Gaza Strip in response to a series of Hamas rockets that uh, killed one uh, 47-year-old Israeli student. Um, which that attack was in response to the IDF killing eight Hamas members earlier that month. But during during the IDF's Operation Hot Winter, uh, 110 Palestinians were killed. 54 of them were children. Uh, and then a month, just one month after Perez was knighted, the 2008 Gaza War uh, broke out, also known as the Gaza Massacre. And that was started by the IDF, who called it Operation Cast Lead, uh, a three-week large-scale military campaign in the Gaza Strip, the massacre resulted in uh, in uh, like 1,400 Palestinian deaths and 13 Israeli deaths, four from friendly fire. Um, so it's just a massacre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that 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 was like a few weeks after after Queen Elizabeth knighted knighted the then president of of uh, of, of of Israel, who previously served as the prime minister, which is more of like a real role. Um, anyway, moving on to more fun people. Uh, 1989, Queen Elizabeth awarded Ronald Reagan with an honorary knighthood. Um, That's good. Now, thankfully, the way honorary knight- knighthoods work is you don't become a sir because uh, yeah. sir is a title reserved for people from Britain. If um, I'm not mistaken, you can't hold office in the United States if you are a knight. Oh, like, I, I wouldn't. Think it, I think it's an old rule we have. Yeah, I, I seem I didn't to recall know reading something about that. Yeah, yeah. No, I think isn't it? In, no, it's not in the Constitution, but there's something about 
Yeah. Yeah. But so, okay. so, but even though you know you can't become a sir because you're not from Britain, um, you uh, okay? Here we go. No title of nobility. This is Article One, Section Nine, Clause Eight of the Constitution. Oh, it is no, in the Constitution. Yeah. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of the Congress, accept of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind whatsoever from any king, prince, or foreign state. Fascinating. Yeah. So, like, again, the people who made this country for all of their flaws looked at the British monarchy and were like, that's fucking nuts. They did a Bush revolution. Well, yeah. because, <sighs> because, because Reagan was, uh, was knight, uh, was received an honorary knighthood, the one benefit he does get is that at dinner parties, Reagan was able to sit closer to the queen than unknighted former presidents. That's good. I'm glad that we have to like honestly look again i hate that like i'm coming across as like america flex shit but i feel like any president of the u.s should be able to pull up riker style flip a chair around sit down next to her and say look we've been pulling your ass out of the fire for the last century like you don't get to fucking make me sit somewhere i'm the president of the united states and you're a doddering old queen of a fucking third-rate power um i hate that i just went like full fucking whatever there but uh, honestly that's what? fucking ridiculous yeah um, it's like like may, maybe maybe the only country ever that the u.s gets moral superiority yes over that like still we, exists it's like is the british empire like, like don't you don't like what the, seriously lady um unbelievable the uh, one other president who was knighted uh was george hw bush who was knighted oh into <laughs> the grand cross of the order of the bath <laughs> well, he did look like he could use one a lot of the time. Uh, a rare, a rarely awarded top order of knighthoods. That's good. I'm glad he got Grand that. Order of the bath. Oh, uh, no. uh, British officials said that the knighthood marked the close relationship between the Republican president and Britain's conservative government, particularly during the Gulf War. Great. Um, yeah, that was a real uh, moment of 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 trial and tragedy for the British royal family. Yeah, yeah. They, they, yeah. They, they they had they had to sit there and watch while they were, people I'm, burned conscripts alive. Yeah, I'm, they were really at risk there. I'm going to quote from the book Royal Babylon by English poet and activist Heathcote Williams. Quote: The fact that each U.S. president's record, without exception, would earn them seats on the dock at Nuremberg or at the International Criminal Court on genocide charges doesn't deter the royal family from honoring them. For by an ironic twist, each U.S. president morphs into George III, against whom their forebearers fought. Uh, which is a nice, a nice, a nice little quote by uh, by uh, this 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 English this English writer in the pretty good book Royal Babylon. If you want to if you want to learn about how fucked up the monarchy is, uh, this is a pretty a pretty fun book. Um, let's see who else who else should be uh, who else should we let's let's talk about. Norman Schwarzenkopf. Uh, Schwarzkopf. Norman Schw Schwarzkopf. He was the head of the. He was the guy who actually like ran the the Desert Storm campaign. Yes, uh, he he said that uh, the dead Iraqis quote weren't worth counting and among like casualties of war, and that quote I want every Iraqi soldier bleeding from every orifice. Um, yeah. It's uh, I mean, you know, Schwarzkopf was a guy who fought in Vietnam and took the loss hard. And I think he a big part of why big part of what was going on with Desert Storm was a desire to, quote unquote, reclaim like 
our military pride by beating the shit out of a, a smaller country. Um, which is not to say that like, I, I don't believe there was like Iraq had invaded a neighbor and occupied it. That's bad. Something should have been done. But the whole, the whole like masturbatory, I want all of their fucking conscript soldiers, these like teenage kids to die is, 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 is like sick lunacy as was the masturbation over the, anyway, whatever. We don't need to talk about the Gulf war here. He was anyway, he was, uh, he also received a knighthood after all of that stuff, which is fun. Uh, uh, also, Elizabeth gave yeah. a knighthood to Colin Powell, um, who uh, facilitated, covered up, and justified many U.S. war crimes in Vietnam. Hey, hey, hey Garrison, facilitated cover-ups. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, most yeah. famously, My Lai. Uh, yes. Yeah. The My Lai Massacre is the yeah. biggest thing that he was, uh, that he was involved but in. there were others. There were others. He he's, also, like, he's that I, guy. I, I think... He's like like the the thing I think is important. He is probably the one person on Earth in the Bush administration who could have stopped the Iraq War if he wanted to, and he didn't. Yep. Like he 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 knew that it was all bullshit, and he was like, "Nah, fuck it, let's do this Let's, war. Quote, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go lie to the UN. <laughs> quoting Powell, we burned down the thatched huts, starting the blaze with Ronson and Zippo lighters. Why were we torching houses and destroying crops? Ho Chi Ming said that his people were like the sea in which gorillas swarm. We tried to solve the problem by making the whole sea uninhabitable. In the hard logic of war, what difference does it make if you shot your enemy or starved him to death? So... So anyway, true, bestie. Night, 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 Colin Powell. So true, so true, buddy. <laughs> um, probably the least problematic person among this list. Uh, in 1995, the Queen approved uh, an honorary knighthood to a uh, uh, former U.S. Secretary of State, uh, what's, what's Henry Kiss Kissinger. Kissinger. Yeah, he um, was he was just kind of a functionary, very not not a big deal. We should probably yeah, just skip over. I think that I think, I think that's how it's pronounced. Yeah, uh, he he was he was appointed an honorary uh, knight commander in the most distinguished order of Saint Michael and Saint George. Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh. Well, here, here's the thing. Here's the it's thing. So Look, funny. We, we, we must applaud the British for 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 honoring the most popular American in China. It was a very progressive decision for her. Yes, Kissinger. Uh, I think uh, uh, a few of Kissinger's assistants also got knighted. Uh, Brent Scrowcroft, Scowcroft, Scowcroft. Yeah. Um, he got he got knighted. Uh, I think people from the Iran Contra uh, drugs uh, and arms affair stuff got knighted. Uh, there was a oh, yeah. lot. A lot of like war criminal dudes got knighted in this in this like late nineties period. I wonder what was going on there. Also, uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover was 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 knighted, <laughs> um, <sighs> uh, which is pretty funny. And then uh, the uh, the an, an economic uh, uh, financier who endorsed uh, uh, really bad derivatives to make the housing bubble. Kind of blow up uh, Alan Greenspan, uh, another American. Oh, he, he also Gre- Greenspan like he oh he God. got knighted. We could we could He's do a horrible like person. Several. That that man that man has killed more people than most generals. Like he has. Oh boy. Yeah, he is. He is pretty bad. Um, I think I think we can do an ad break, and then James is going to join us again uh, to finish up by talking about uh, Ireland and Kenya. Um, because there's, there's a lot of stuff in, in Ireland and Kenya. 
So anyway, uh, do you know who won't receive a knighthood by Queen Elizabeth? That these products and services because I was going to say Queen Elizabeth because she's too dead to tap <laughs> she's anybody dead. on the People, fucking that, shoulder. That, that's yeah. the joke. She can't give them a knighthood yeah. because she's yeah. dead. That's, anyway, here's the ads. Very funny. Ah, uh, we're back, and you know I I need to keep the audience informed about important network business for Cool Zone. So I want to let you all know that as he was coming back from getting his shot, James texted us all. Okay, I'll be on in one sex. And there's a lot of jokes that we could make about that uh, as, as a network. Yeah. And I'm not going to make them, but I'm going to urge you to make them yourself in your own heart and head and then tweet them to James. James is at James is at uh, I write OK on Twitter. That's right. Um, that's, that's my Twitter handle. I write OK. You can see a picture of me there. That's me. Anyway, uh, so we're now going to talk about mo- mainly mainly two places where British colonialism and imperialism had de- devastating effects under Queen Elizabeth and a few a few uh, pretty pretty evil people that that Elizabeth then also knighted um, <laughs> who who were doing who were like directly doing this British colonialism. Uh, let's talk about Kenya a little bit. So during the 1950s, uh, British tried to get control of lands in Kenya that they that they had violently they were trying 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 to keep keep control of land that they had previously stolen. Um, yeah. Native Kenyans fought back in the Mau Mau uprising. Now, hist- we've historians have, historians have documented widespread torture by British forces, including the crushing of testicles with pliers, um, and the internment of up to three hundred and twenty thousand people in concentration camps, where they then endured uh, slavery, starvation, uh, murder, and rape with uh, rape with blunt objects. Um, meanwhile, one point five million Kenyans were confined to a network of detention camps and uh, heavily patrolled villages, as documented by uh, historian Caroline Elkins in her Pulitzer Prize-winning Britain's Gulag. So this 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 was all overseen by the Queen as the head of state. Um, was, and by the way, she was thirty-one at this point. You you don't you don't get to say, well, she just come and you know was just listening to her advisors. It, at thirty-one years old, you are young, but you are old enough to not be complicit in a genocide. Yeah, yeah. especially when yeah. you're the head of state. Like, come on, yes. <laughs> as the Queen of England, she had yeah. some leverage. She is not yeah. like, oh, you came at you worked, you were a tax collector in fucking South fucking Shire, England, and you happened to be in doing that job when the Mau Mau were being suppressed. No, no, no. She was the head of state. And she 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 knew about stuff was going on, was heavily involved because she was giving out like she was working with people who were doing pretty uh, like egregious things. Um, according to Kenya's biggest newspaper, the Daily Nation, a British policeman named Ian Henderson was known in Kenya as the torturer in chief and was the kind of the, the guy behind preparing a whole bunch of bogus evidence in the 1953 trial where six leading Mau Mau uh, uprising figures were convicted um, including the the future first president of independent Kenya now queen elizabeth ii honored ian henderson again the torturer in chief with the george medal a uh, britain's highest civilian award in september of 1954 uh, okay. for his work in kenya so this is important like he wasn't military he was just a policeman which is why he gets a civilian uh, award um but so like she knew what was going on was giving out individual police officers awards mm-hmm. for their roles in crushing the in crushing these uh independent mm-hmm. uprisings you know who never would have done that is suppose at the second 
Absolute clown shit. I, 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 I do not know enough about the first the second. I don't know how he acquired 1,000 grandchildren. I'm not going to make any yeah. claims. Look, to be fair, there's probably some shady shit in Sobuza the second's uh, reign. But the main thing he was known for was taking back control of Swaziland's indigenous industries, being a good neighbor to the other African countries once they gained their independence, and of course, exporting a shitload of asbestos. So, uh, any, any any other notes on yeah. on Kenya? Yeah. So, just before I do want to like just briefly raise that like Elkins, um, they, they, it was that was a very unconventional and a very good book for a, for a young academic, and she deserves a lot of credit for writing it. In the process of writing that book and then trying to write her second book, um, and obviously she dealt with a lot of backlash from writing her first book. She uncovered that Britain had hidden, classified destroyed and refused to disclose a mountain of records about its colonial crimes in Kenya. And this is like an ongoing issue that goes on into the 20 teens that there are public records court cases about this. Um, it's, it's so like we, we can see that like, it's wrong to say that this is like a, just a relic of another era, right? Britain is, has continued into this era, like the, the ideology of the government from then to now is virtually indistinguishable, right? It's it's neoliberal conservatives. They have continued to hide rather than face justice for these crimes, right? Rather than say sorry, rather than say what we did was wrong, they've tried to cover up this shit. Um, and, and like we we need to remember that when we talk about like this is not a crime of the past. These these are ongoing acts of, of genocide and genocide denial that we keep doing. Yeah, and I should mention, so I think we were talking about Operation Legacy. So there are a bunch of different instances of the British government, like destroying all the records. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the other fun things they were covering, they seem to have been covering up. And we don't we don't know exactly what was in those records, because, again, they were just like they were destroyed. Um, but one of the other things that was in this records is about uh, a second time that Brit that uh, the UK put a bunch of people in concentration camps. Uh, while Queen Elizabeth was president, which was they did this. They also did this in Malaysia. They put no, a million people. They did this in a sorry. Well, she was while she was clown president, which is to say I uh, just uh, to say queen. We're going to yeah. actually be talking about Malaysia in just a sec. Um, yeah, good. That was an emergency, not a war. It's important term. Yeah. So. So uh, 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 Ian Henderson, the the torturer in chief who received this award, uh, obviously had to leave Kenya uh, shortly after the fifties because things happened, um, and then he he got he got moved to Bahrain, um, and during a wave oh, of yeah. pro independence revolts in Bahrain <sighs> in nineteen sixty eight. Uh, yeah. Henderson was appointed the head of the secret police and served as so until nineteen ninety eight. Um, and over yeah. the course of his tenure, he became known as the Butcher of Bahrain, uh, quoting The Guardian, quote, during his time, his men allegedly detained and tortured thousands of anti-government activists. Their activities are said to have included the ransacking of villages, sadistic sexual abuse, and using power drills to maim prisoners. On many occasions, Jesus. they are, have said to detain children without informing their parents, only to return them months later in body bags, unquote. Um, yeah, and, and the Bahrain stuff, it's also worth mentioning, like, that never stopped. Like, no. It, yeah, I mean, it stopped being him in charge, but like, like I mean, in two thousand, it only stopped him being in charge in nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, yeah, and, and like, yeah, and, and, and in two thousand eleven, there was another revolution against like the Bahraini, uh, the Bahraini like monarchy, and I mean, it ended essentially when the Saudis rolled tanks across the border. But one of the things that happened was that the British helped 
like the Bahraini government like hunt down dissidents. I just busted out my lecture on this Hanslope Park stuff. If we want to talk more about, there were fifteen miles of files that they found that have been hidden. I mean, this that was that was also the case well, yeah. in Look, uh, Ireland, I, which we're going to talk a bit about later. The odd file. I, I lose emails all the time. That's similar to fifteen miles of paperwork. So in 1984, uh, Ian Henderson was awarded by Queen Elizabeth with a CBE for services to British interests in Bahrain. And uh, he also received a knighthood in the most excellent order of the British Empire. So this, this was after he was already known as the Butcher of Bahrain. This, this, is, this is 1984. He's well into his tenure. He is torturing children, killing them, kidnapping them, maiming people. And that's when he gets knighthooded uh, uh, for his services to the British interests in Bahrain. Um, so yeah, that's that's Ian Henderson. Um, now, uh, during Henderson's time in Kenya, uh, he was just a part of the small team that was developing a new form of counterinsurgency, pseudo gangster tactics, uh, kind of weaponizing like gang gang warfare for British interests. Uh, the other person who was kind of running this operation was an Englishman named Frank Kidson. Um, so he, in, uh, he, he was also serving in Kenya. Um, and then on New Year's in 1955, Kidson was awarded the British Military Cross in recognition of gallant and distinguished services in Kenya. Um, and three years later, he gained a bar uh, to that medal for his work in the... Uh, Malaysian emergency, quote unquote. So during Britain's brutal role, brutal war in Malaysia, um, he 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 played he played a part in the uh, concentration camps, which Chris mentioned. Uh, the process was known as vigilization, uh, as they forced people into these concentration camps all over the course of a famine, and he, they were invading Malaysia to fund Britain's kind of post-war reconstruction. Uh, so he. He was in uh, Kenya, Malaysia. He also went to Bahrain, just like Henderson did. He went to Yemen, Aden, and Cyprus, all places where the British state is uh, known for doing the widespread use of torture. Um, and then he went to, Nor he went to Northern Ireland uh, in a not shocking turn of events. Um, he at, then was the professional head of the British Army during the Iraq War, described Kidson as, quote, the sun around which the planets revolved, saying that, quote, he very much set the tone for the operational style in Belfast. Um, the, oh, buddy. Uh -huh. oh, buddy. Oh, no. The notorious uh, military reaction force, the MRF, uh, which was uh, accused of being behind a, a string of illegal shootings of Catholic teenagers in the early 70s, was based at Kitson's headquarters outside Belfast. And one of the units under his command was nicknamed Kitson's Private Army. Uh, its official name was One Para, and these were the people that did Bloody Sunday. Um, so in 1972 in Derry, 15,000 people gathered outside to protest against uh, detention without trial. At uh, 10 past four, British paratroopers uh, opened fire. 28 people were shot, some in the back as they fled. 14 people were killed, seven of whom were teenagers. And it was Kitson's private army who fired all 108 shots uh, in Derry during winter of 1972. 
uh, one of the victims, uh, the first teenager uh, named Kevin, uh, was 17 years old. He was shot from behind while trying to crawl to safety. Um, yeah. Uh, the anyway. Barry Murphy massacre was at the same time as well. Like it, it's worth people. Like, th- these are very well documented things that people that people can read about that we don't need to describe in detail. But so they're not nice. England, in- England, bad. Elizabeth Queen. In 1972, Frank Kidson was knighted. Mm-hmm. Again, same same year as the massacre, mm-hmm. was knighted by the Queen for gallant and distinguished service in Northern Ireland and was promoted to Commander of the Order of the British Empire. Um, a few years later, he became a Major General and the, quote, Knight Commander of the Order of the Bath. Again, what, is, what the uh, fuck is going it on? Is, it is nice so, that he and former head of the CIA, George H.W. Bush, got to hang out in their fancy club, though. These people are so fucked up. It's, um, it's, it's great. So later, later, Kitson served as commander in chief for the UK Land Forces from 1982 to 1985, and was the aide de was the aide de camp general to Queen Elizabeth, direct directly to Queen Elizabeth from 1983 to 1985. So, yeah, that's uh, that's fun. Um, it's worth noting that the Order of the Bath is like a. Uh, I believe that some of those other honors that Queen's honors that you've talked about are like are selected by a committee or perhaps by government. I'm not quite sure. The Order of the Bath is supposed to be like the personal. The, the Queen's like specific selection. Yeah. Yeah. And the sovereign um, is head of the Order of the Bath. Like it's like a, you'll see, it's the big, uh, it's the big diamond shaped medal. Ew, that you'll see lots you of You all tortured wearing. so dreadfully well. I'd love to give you this fancy award for jamming screwdrivers into children and turning them on. Who <laughs> till you do? Go off to go breed another corgi. <laughs> That's the ghost of the queen you were promised at the start of the episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, it, throughout, throughout the two- Robert's basement. Throughout the 2000s, Kinson remained a key advisor on U.S. military strategy during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, um, there is much that the U.S. has done, which is also war crimes and torture in those wars. Yeah, and, and we yeah. should also mention, okay, th- there's, there's a thing you'll get from insurgency nerds who will talk about the My Lai, like, emergency quote-unquote is like the one successful counterinsurgency and that's just not true like the insurgency started again after they stopped and second uh you can tell how well this went by the fact that that guy also was helping the u.s do iraq and afghanistan and the only thing he's ever managed to accomplish is killing an enormous number of wow. people he doesn't yeah, yeah. i mean just he was wars. just a he, sea he, of dubs there yeah he was worked yeah. Out in all those countries he was heavily involved in aden and yemen which led to two hundred thousand deaths uh between 1962 and 1970 um and and today, British armies still continue the same the the, the, the same process of uh, of o- overseeing the bombing of Yemen. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's good stuff. This isn't like I mean, a bit, like, wait, this stuff not one the U.S. is innocent of. Just to, oh no, we're the ones we arming. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, we need the, to the uh, Saudi coalition, whatever you want to call it, that's murdering people in Yemen. But yeah, I, I think. The Britain broader. doesn't have the capacity to to make as many bombs as the US is sending to Yemen, I would doubt. But but, but all yeah. of these processes and all of these people are still continuing the same colonialism and the same Yes. The, yeah. all of the same oppression. Like this isn't like this isn't like quote unquote yeah. the past. It's it's an ongoing yeah. thing that the monarchy awards and perpetuates. They've had to downsize it a little bit because, you know, it just doesn't work as well as it used to. And so the thing they decided to do to downsize it was stop paying off the populace um, and just start policing them harder. And but but the the, the money has kept flowing to the royals. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah. Worth so anyway, in the Malay emergency, that Britain did pioneer the use of Agent Orange. So that's another gift that we've given to the people of the United States. Ah, oh, well, thank you, James, for that one. Yeah, you're welcome, mate. Anytime it's that, it's tea cozies with the queen on, it's stuffed <laughs> corgis. You know, we I want to s- suggest if you are looking for a way to properly mourn Queen Elizabeth, um, maybe check out the film Churchill, The Hollywood Years, a truly exceptional movie. If you just type <laughs> it into Google and look around on YouTube, you can find a full copy of it. Um, it features Christian Slater as Winston Churchill and Nev Campbell as the recently deceased queen. Um, and I don't know who it is that they got to play her father, the former king, but he's he's basically portrayed as like a drunk and also... Like every time there's a big fancy party, he's just constantly staring at everyone's drinks because he's angry that they're drinking his champagne because he's a big fucking uh, 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 spinthrift. Um, very funny, very good send up of the royal family. Um, also, Heinrich Himmler conducts a satanic wedding and by replacing a crucifix with a chicken. It's it's a good movie. Watch <laughs> just that. Just like in real life. Yeah. Just yeah. like in real life. I, I'll also recommend you check out the book Royal Babylon. I was able to get it a free copy online through great methods. Um, so anyway, yeah, that if you yeah. want a, a nice like poetic history of how the queen is fucked up and the monarchy sucks, Royal Babylon's a nice easy read. Yeah. Did you get into the Bowles Lion Sisters as well? Did you do that? No. Uh, these two people who were disabled. They are the queen's cousins. They. The, the, the royal family basically announced they were dead, but they weren't dead, and they lived in uh, an institutional home for, uh, I think it was, well, it was called the Royal Earlswood Institution for Mental Defectives. And Great. They lived there, more or less anonymously, completely disowned by the family uh, on a very small stipend until they died. Um, and that is not a nice way to treat your cousins. Well, yeah. this only cements my opinion that yeah, the some, monarchy some- is... Bad. Bad. Yep. Something <laughs> about Foucault and boomerangs and colonialism. Yeah. And Abolish the monarchy. It's always okay to celebrate the death of a king or queen. Yep. Um, yep. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter how yep. it happens. Um, it's bad for the concept of monarchy is the only thing more toxic than the concept of inherited wealth. Um, and both are deeply tied to each other. Uh, fuck the queen and fuck all of her relatives, except for the ones who give up their their positions and power. Those people are are cool. Yeah. Uh, don't tone police people whose parents were killed by colonial regimes on the yeah. internet either. Yeah. That's yeah. And over, overthrow the government of Britain. Yeah. Look, we always, this podcast (laughs) from the beginning has been directly in favor of an insurrection against the crown. Yeah. Um, The one thing that you do have to hand it to the queen for is seeing Liz Truss as prime minister and immediately dying, which is an appropriate response. (laughs) Yeah, to me, there, me too. Committing ritual suicide. Uh, and, with, and you know, again, King Sabuto II did destroy democracy in Swaziland, but then he replaced it with something that kind of sounds like democracy, and that's more than Queen Elizabeth did. <laughs> yeah, we just started at point B with something <laughs> yeah. that kind of sounds like democracy. So, I know, I know what king I'm gonna stand in the future. All right, Robert. Well, that's a T-shirt I'll be getting you for Christmas. Thank you. Mm-hmm. New tattoo lo- too. Short, short-lived. King Charles III. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. 
For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.